You're listening to Canada's Court, the first podcast to highlight select oral hearings from the Supreme Court of Canada. Presented by the Criminal Lawyers Association and available on all major podcast platforms. Visit podcast.criminallawyers.ca for more information. Hello, and welcome to Canada's Court, brought to you by the Criminal Lawyers Association. My name is Maria Rosamuya, and I am a sole practitioner, criminal defense lawyer in the Greater Toronto Area. This episode is the case of James Andrew Beaver and Brian John Lambert versus Her Majesty the Queen. The appellants, Mr. Beaver and his co-accused, Mr. Lambert, were convicted of manslaughter in relation to the death of their roommate. After being initially detained by officers at the scene under a non-existent act, they were arrested by detectives for murder two hours later at the police station. Following a lengthy interview, the co-accused, Mr. Lambert, confessed to their involvement in the death of the roommate. When confronted with the confession, Mr. Beaver admitted his participation as well. At trial, Mr. Beaver and Mr. Lambert sought a stay of proceedings or, alternatively, the exclusion of all evidence which derived from alleged violations of their rights protected by Sections 7, 9, 10A, and 10B of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Mr. Beaver and Mr. Lambert also alleged that the detective who arrested them at the station did not have reasonable and probable grounds to do so. The Crown conceded that the appellant's charter rights had been breached when they were detained under a non-existent law, but argued that the arrest at the station constituted a fresh start, which insulated their confessions from the previous breaches. The trial judge dismissed the application, finding that the police had reasonable and probable grounds to arrest Mr. Beaver and Mr. Lambert for murder at the police station, and that the arrest constituted a fresh start, which cured the previous breaches. The trial judge concluded that the confessions had not been tainted by the breaches. Nevertheless, the trial judge conducted a Section 24-2 analysis and concluded that the confessions would have been admitted. Mr. Beaver and Mr. Lambert appealed to the Court of Appeal of Alberta. All three members of the Court of Appeal unanimously dismissed the appeal. The court held that the trial judge properly found that sufficient grounds existed for the arrest of Mr. Beaver and Mr. Lambert based on the information the police had at the time, and that the judge did not err in finding that the confessions were not tainted by the charter breaches, that Mr. Beaver and Mr. Lambert's confessions were voluntary, and by allowing Mr. Beaver's and Mr. Lambert's confessions to be admitted into evidence. Mr. Beaver and Mr. Lambert were granted leave to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. Good morning to all. In the case of James Andrew Beaver against Her Majesty the Queen and between Brian John Lambert against Her Majesty the Queen, for the appellant, James Andrew Beaver, Sarah Renkin and Kelsey Sitar. For the appellant, Brian John, John Lambert, Jennifer Rutten, and Michael Bates. For the intervener, Canadian Civil Liberties Association, Samara Sector, and Rikash Walters. For the respondent, Her Majesty the Queen, Rajbir Dillon, and Andrew Barge. For the intervener, Attorney General of Ontario, Mabel Lai, and Nicholas Hay. Ms. Renkin. 
Chief Justice, Justices, I appear with Kelsey Sitar for Mr. Beaver. I will address the voluntariness issue raised only by Mr. Beaver, and she and counsel for Mr. Lambert will then address the charter issues common to both appeals. On voluntariness, it is my submission that upholding the decisions below would effect a change in the law. Since at least Hébert, the law has been that a statement from a suspect is not voluntary unless the Crown establishes the Speaker made a free and meaningful choice to give that statement. I'll make two points on this issue. First, that voluntariness requires the court to assess if the suspect has been given information alerting them to the jeopardy and investigative context that they are in. The law says this by implication and this court should state it clearly. Second, that the approach of the trial judge here failed to identify this requirement or to assess it. On the first point, the confessions rule applies any time police question a suspect. It is broader than the right to silence and the other bundle of rights triggered by detention. We know from the law a choice, a voluntary choice must be free and meaningful, and that this is more than a negative inquiry. A free choice clearly captures the factors there must be an absence of, but the positive content of a meaningful choice is less explicit in the law. Can I, can I stop you there? The, the, the jump to meaningful choice, which is actually was a matter of debate earlier this year in another another appeal, which I think your, your co-counsel might, might know about, um, comes from, as you say, from Hébert. And I'm just wondering if, if you see that as just a different way of saying the Oikel test, or is that a change in the law from Oikel? I don't, I would submit it's not a change in the law, uh, that it reflects free and meaningful, I think there's been a distinction throughout the case law between the fairness interest and the reliability interest. Uh, and I think that by the time the law reaches Singh, those two are connected and that the content of both free and meaningful uh, is reflected throughout the case law and throughout the interest in fairness in particular. Well, that, that may be the case. I, I, and certainly for many years, fairness has been a concern under the confessions rule, but I'm asking you specifically if there's a shift away from the operating mind idea in Oikel. Because you seem to be, sorry to uh, cut you off, you, you seem to be sort of taking for granted that we've moved beyond Oikel when, as I say, at least my memory of it, that was a pretty hot topic of debate earlier this year. Yes, I would say a couple of things. The first is if we look at, to make sense of the operating mind requirement, uh, meaningfulness, I think, is found in that case in Whittle. Uh, and the reason I say that is because to make sense of when the court says in Whittle that it is the, it is enough, all that is required is an operating mind. I think that has to be seen in the context of what Mr. Whittle was asking for the test to become. The evidence in Whittle was that he not only understood he was a suspect, understood he was in jeopardy, uh, understood he was confessing, he sought the police out, uh, understood the nature of the process, had prior criminal experience. His complaint in that case was 
that it was not, his jeopardy was not a priority for him. The consequences were not a priority for him. Uh, and the trial judge in that case had considered that as a separate requirement, and the court rejected that. And so I suppose my submission is that prior to, that OICL is not a change in the law because the, the sort of robust content of meaningfulness um, is by implication in the earlier cases, and, and in particular in what was established in Whittle that led the court to say nothing more than this is required. Uh, the foundation was quite robust already in his case. Okay, well, I'll let, I'll let you get on with things, but and, and apologize for, for harping on this. We are agreed that in this appeal, M Mr. Beaver was detained. There's no debate as to whether Mr. Beaver was detained, whereas in Tessier, for example, a case you allude to in, in your argument, there was a debate as to whether Mr. Tessier was detained. In fact, there was a, a strong argument that, well, he was in a police room and subject to questioning uh, that, uh, that he, he was not detained. Which, would you agree that that's a distinction between our case today and Tessier? That it, was, uh, it, that it, it was debatable in Tessier whether or not he was detained? I would agree with that. I'll turn to the, the sources that I say. Okay, but just, just a moment, pardon me. Um, this court decided Patterson in 2017. So that's, uh, I don't think it departed from Oikel, but it's a more recent statement from the court, which I understood to carry forward Oikel. Are you asking us to depart from what we said in Patterson? I am not. My submission is that the the foundation required to find Mr. Beaver's statement involuntary is in the law as it stands uh, and as it has already been stated, and that it is the trial approach in this case that was a departure from that law. The one of the sources that I that, say. That, sorry, sorry. I'm, Sorry, it, just to follow up on Justice Rowe's question, it, it, your argument is, if I understand it, taking what you've just said this morning uh, on its face, your, your argument is that the, the judge uh, misapprehended the applicable law that wasn't in dispute, and thus it's a problem of, of misunderstanding the law and, and misapplying it, given that he did not understand it, but, but not so much that the law needs to move in order to accommodate his analysis of the facts. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Uh, the, if, if a change, it would be to make explicit what is already contained, but that his error was to misunderstand and misapply the law as it already exists. Uh, I think that the, the central question in Mr. Beaver's case, given he was detained, uh, was whether when he became a suspect in the investigation, he was alerted to that by the conduct of the officers uh, interacting with him. And the trial judge in my submission did not identify that as the essential question or answer it. And the Alberta Court of Appeal failed to review that error. Uh, the confessions rule is broader than the rights on detention. But typically when a suspect is detained, that and the bundle of rights that are triggered will communicate the nature of the particular investigation and the state suspicion of them to them. It's constitutionally required by Section 10A, for example. 
In this case, what's unusual is that none of that information existed to be communicated at the time he was detained. The physical detention at the scene could not communicate the nature of the suspicion or the investigation because there wasn't one at that point. Uh, he starts the interaction with the state as a detained, unsuspected person. And so the essential question was, when he became suspected, was that meaningfully communicated to him? The court had to be satisfied. He spoke to police, understanding he was now the target of individualized suspicion. And in my submission, the, the decision tells us that the trial judge failed to identify that question. And the clearest indication of that is that the trial judge did a voluntariness analysis for the portion of the interaction at the scene when there was absolutely no disagreement that Mr. Beaver was not a target of individualized suspicion. The evidence was unequivocal. There was a concession by the Crown. There was no basis to detain him. He was viewed as a witness at that point. But the trial judge starts his voluntariness analysis by looking at whether that interaction at the scene was voluntary or not. And not only does he conduct a voluntariness analysis of that interaction, he finds the statement was voluntary by implication made with knowledge of his status and of the stakes. Uh, and in my submission, as the law, in the law as we know it, it was legally impossible to find an individual made a meaningful choice to speak with police, aware of the stakes, and in particular aware he's the individualized target of suspicion in a particular investigation when there were no stakes and when officers had not even formed the view that there was a crime, let alone that the men were the target of a, of a particular investigation into a crime. And the only way that that portion of the analysis makes sense to perform is if you have deleted the consideration of that awareness from the analysis entirely. Uh, if you take the question on voluntarius to be solely freedom from interference, the absence of abuse or interference, uh, and both the fact of this analysis and the result that the trial judge reaches tell us in my submission exactly the content of the test that he applied uh, to the second portion of the statement when Detective Hasek becomes involved. If you recall the, the, inter the introduction to that statement, the opening of it, uh, that portion of the interaction is that Mr. Beaver is told nothing has changed. He's told Detective Hasek just knows they're investigating a death. She's just arrived and she doesn't know anything more. And the effect of all of that is to minimize the nature of the investigation, but also to minimize Mr. Beaver as the target of an investigation uh, and her as a participant in that investigation. He is told that he's under arrest for murder. He reacts with surprise uh, and then is told what it means to be under arrest. It, is just, it just means that he can't leave. And in my submission, that was not helpful information in communicating there had been a change in his circumstances, that he was now a target, was now at risk, because based on his experience up to that point, you can't leave if you're a witness either. They put you in a locked police car, and they take you to headquarters, and then they put you in a locked interview room. So it might, in another context, alert someone to the fact that they are now in jeopardy. But in his case, the effect of the prior facts was that the fact of detention, the fact he can't leave, doesn't and can't communicate anything about the new status of Jeopardy. And everything that Detective Hossack says following that actively lulls him into misunderstanding whether a change has happened. He is literally told it is no different. This is just a new person going to read it again. 
And none of this is evaluated by the trial judge in relation to the essential question that I say needed to be addressed in this case, which is, was Mr. Beaver alerted to the change in his position as against the state? The change in the stakes of speaking, the change in the specificity of the interest in him. Uh, The trial judge's treatment of the caution also tells us that he was not alert to that issue. Singh tells us that the caution should come, ideally, when the suspect status crystallizes. Uh, And in my submission, the reason for that is because it ensures the person understands the right to silence as an accused person, that the failure to speak can't be used as a weapon, and that the state is, so to speak, now looking for weapons. The trial judge discounts the fact that there was no caution given by Detective Hasek, finds that the one given at the scene was enough, that was understood, and that tells us everything that the trial judge understood about what he thought needed to be established. The caution given at the scene could not communicate the fact and nature of Mr. Beaver's jeopardy for the same reason that the detention couldn't. There wasn't any. Uh, So whether it alerted him to the right to silence, and I would say the delivery by Constable Husband at the scene makes that debatable, uh, even if so, it it was incapable of communicating to him as an accused person what the right to silence meant, um, and that the trial judge could only find that the scene caution was enough to communicate what the suspect needed to know if you don't give significance to the fact of him becoming a suspect, of him becoming the target of state interest. Ms. Rankin, what do you say to the uh, objection that you're essentially asking for a re- re-weighing of all the criteria that go into voluntariness? You're really, uh, because the trial judge did uh, consider the oracle factors did consider the uh, the uh, threat, the absence of threats or promises, the absence of oppression, um, etc. And really, you're just asking. So, 93 and 94 of his reasons effectively consider all the factors and come to the conclusion he came to. You're you're prioritizing one factor in the mix, and essentially saying we should come to a different conclusion. Yes. So, in my submission, the It's not a situation where he identified the issue and considered the factors relevant to it. Uh, It was necessary but not sufficient that the oikel factors be absent. But the relevant evidence, the uh, context of that, he essentially takes the fact that the police said arrested for murder without examining the context around that, given what has happened up up, up until that interaction. And that combined with the fact that he begins the analysis looking at voluntariness in the context of a situation where it's beyond question that the statement could not have been even the target of a voluntary analysis, let alone found to be voluntary, uh, that, that demonstrates there was a legal error in failing to identify that element of the test as opposed to consider the factors relevant to it. And so this is a it's, a, it's an issue of law. It's an issue of correctly identifying the test in my submission. Yeah. But if someone is told you're under arrest for murder, I mean, I mean, isn't it really obvious at that point that the questions that are going to be posed to you are going to be probing for the purpose of finding evidence relevant to the charge? 
I think it's, it would be capable in a different situation of communicating that uh, if it were not for what had already happened and for the way that Detective Hasek answers the next question. She says you're under arrest for murder. He reacts with surprise. What she communicates is that that means he can't leave. And in his experience so far, that is not a change. It is not a, 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 a clue that he is now the target of particular state interest. Uh, because not being able to leave, as far as he is aware, is what happens to everyone who is being spoken to by police as witnesses. It's what happened to him when he was, when he had the status of a witness at the scene. And so that combined with the, the repeated refrain of, this is just a refresh, I'm new, we'll read it again, same as she did at the scene. Um, you know, the, there's a reason that the caution is a, a relevant factor, and it's because it will often happen and communicate nature of the investigation, nature of the suspicion, and the fact of the right to silence, and that'll be enough. But the unusual unfolding of the events at the scene in this case mean that something else was required and that the context of active, actively contributing to misunderstanding by Detective Hasek uh, left him without being on alert to that change in circumstances. You actually, you actually in a way, understate uh, the case. Um, I mean, it's true, Detective Hasek said it means you can't leave, but detect, Detective Hasek went further. Right, reassuring him that that nothing had changed from the first time this information read to him, that the information was no different from what Constable Husband had read to him. Yes, that is exactly right. Thank you, Justice Brown. The and from the outset, even before he's told, leading into the fact that he's under arrest, is told he says they read it to me at the scene, and she says I'll read it again. Um, the whole tone of the interaction is that it is a continuous and similar approach and interest in him as what he has experienced up to that point. Um, and so it was not enough to determine that he, there was not enough there to determine that he was aware that he was now the target of state interest or that that had been communicated to him in any meaningful way. Um, I would also say that this is evident in the trial judge's reliance on the fact that the initial statements are exculpatory and that the statement gets exculpatory later. Uh, the law has not drawn a distinction between inculpatory or exculpatory statements in voluntariness for at least 50 years since Pichet. And in my submission for good reason, the law recognizes that a naive liar is at risk of harming their interests without knowing the risks. Uh, voluntariness does not require a speaker to be wise or to actually act in self-preservation, but it does require that the risk be communicated to them, and that with that knowledge, they make their decisions. The trial judge says at one point in his analysis, he spoke, it was voluntary. And why would it not be? Why would you give an exculpatory, why wouldn't you give an exculpatory statement? And in my submission, uh, this court observed in Grant, paragraph 97 of Grant observes that a person who is detained without a lawyer may make statements based more on a misconceived idea of the situation than based on the truth. Plaha also makes this observation that certainly a person who makes inculpatory statements may lead themselves into further interactions with the police, but a person who's already given exculpatory statements may also repeat that statement, mistakenly believing that it can't harm them. And on its own, the fact that Mr. Beaver gave the statement is neutral, inculpatory, exculpatory, 
that doesn't matter. It doesn't give us the voluntariness answer. The fact he spoke is the reason that the voir dire is happening. And our commitment to an individual's will that we move about the world presumptively free from an obligation to provide information to police, to provide the contents of our mind, means we start the analysis from a position of skepticism. The statement must be demonstrated voluntary in the full sense of that word. Mr. Rassi, what do you, oh. Go ahead, Mr. Justice Clear. Oh, go, you, Justice Jamal, I'll follow you. What do you say, though? I mean, what you say uh, in the abstract is obviously um, uh, appealing. But really what happened here is uh, the statement was made when he was shown the video clip of Mr. La from Mr. Lambert. So uh, the the there was no sort of misunderstanding about the nature of the jeopardy. It was that he was caught essentially dead to rights by virtue of the uh, statement of his uh, his uh, accomplice. So that's really the context of this case, rather than somebody not understanding the scope of his jeopardy and having his will overborne. It was somebody holding up under questioning for a long, long time, being told you're under investigation for murder, and then being shown a video clip and saying, okay, um, that's really the context here. Yes, I mean, in my submission, that is why the inculpatory exculpatory distinction was done away with. The fact that information sort of trickles out through the course of the day where he's told by officers entering the room is formality, you're a witness, um, all of that contributes to the circumstance where that ultimate information is provided. Uh, and it was attacked at trial that the, you know, the evidence of Detective Hasek was that he was not really leaving that room no matter what. Um, and so I don't, I think I would suggest it's an error for the trial judge to separate out that part of the day uh, and look solely at it without looking at the fact that 10 hours have gone by following an illegal detention before that information is revealed and that it's intimately tied back to what's happened during the course of the day and what's already been provided, which was the target of the charter arguments at trial. Uh, and I will at this point, subject to questions, turn the remainder of the time over to Ms. Sitar for that issue. I'll just, if you'll, you'll invite me to, you invited me to a last question. I don't want to impinge upon your time, but you said earlier you weren't looking for the law to change uh, in respect of confessions. So, so you wouldn't endorse, if, unless I'm mistaken, the idea that um, there should be a positive obligation on the police to advise advise the person who's interrogated as, as to what is at stake? I would say that what is, it is required that the information about the fact of individualized suspicion and the nature of the investigation is communicated, that a meaningful choice entails choosing to speak aware of the stakes, sort of writ large, uh, that being that you are in jeopardy of some kind. And I'll turn it over to Ms. Sitar. Thank you. Thank you, Chief Justice. Justices. In the appellant submission, there are two key principles that must overarch a determination of the charter-related grounds. The first is that the purpose of 24-2 is to facilitate public confidence in the administration of justice by promoting adherence to the rule of law. Second, to ensure that Section 24-2 can accomplish those important goals, the gateway to access is generous and broad. 
Contrary to these principles, the appellant's case stands for the proposition that police can insulate their own recklessly unconstitutional conduct from consideration under 24-2, so long as they eventually try to stop actively breaching an individual's charter rights. The appellant submit that while police officers' efforts to stop a breach from continuing will be part of the totality of the circumstances that must be considered, those efforts cannot be treated as dispositive of the threshold inquiry. Police should not be able to insulate earlier conduct from remedial consideration by later acting in accordance with their charter obligations. If eventually constitutional conduct is enough to circumvent the impact of earlier breaches, there is no incentive for state actors to act carefully and lawfully in the first place. This sounds to me like an argument for the, for the fruit of the poison tree. Once you've taken the fruit of the poison tree, everything afterwards is, is irremediably tainted and, and, and there is no way back. Right? You, can never make a, you can never make a fresh start, it seems to me, as much as saying. It's the appellant's submission, uh, just to throw that, it's not that there could never be what, what the law might properly uh, consider a fresh start. What Our position is that fresh start, terms like curing a breach, they introduce confusion and a risk of error for trial judges. That is really what needs to be addressed. That the fact that police attempt to remedy a breach, depending on how they do that, may or may not be enough in the circumstances of a case. The the concern with fresh start or or curing a breach is that it suggests that just by doing the thing, the bare minimum thing you should have done in the first place, we get to hit a a reset button on the entire interaction. Can I I kind of... I want to make a suggestion to you as to what I think, at least the, f- the framework that, that I'm sort of looking at this, and, and, and I think it's what you're saying, but, but I, it's, it's casting a slightly different spin on it, is, is look, <clears throat> um, in Mac, we didn't talk about fresh start. In, in Mac, what we talked about um, was uh, whether there is a, the same transaction or the same course of conduct at work. And that is to be determined retrospectively by considering whether there is a temporal, a contextual, or a causal connection or, or some combination thereof. And, and that if we understand fresh start in that way, then I suppose in theory, there's nothing wrong with a fresh start, but it is, I think what you're getting at is it's unhelpful because it 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 kind of puts the mindset more prospectively that are do we just making a clean break and what happened what matters is what happens going forward is that is that a fair kind of spin on on what you're saying thank you justice brown yes it is and i think to put a bit of a finer point on on perhaps part of it the risk of fresh start as a term in the appellant submission is really that it it has a directly causal connotation. So as um, as has been indicated, we need to be looking at context, temporal connections, all of the available connections. And so what it can do is, is lure a trial judge into a false sense of security, where really all it's diving into and considering is that causal piece. And of course, this court has said many times, uh, you don't have to have a causal connection uh, to have a, a remedy or... or 
to get through the threshold to 24-2. Is that what you, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Justice. Oh, Mr. Brown, Justice Brown, go ahead. Um, and, is that, uh, and is that what you say happened here? Yes. Uh, if we essentially what the appellants say is that this this terminology caused the judge to consider and put all of his attention on the police efforts and treat it in that sort of causal way. And what it ended up doing is creating a false dichotomy between the arrest that was directed by Detective Vermette and the need to to broadly examine the totality of the circumstances, the entire transaction. So instead of looking for those other connections in that entire transaction, the trial judge's analysis was either or. Either the arrest directed by Detective Vermette was lawful, and then if it was, that would render the, everything that happened before it no longer part of the same transaction. And, and that plays out um, at paragraphs 204 to through right to 215 in the, in the trial judge's judgment, but particularly in, in sort of 203 to 209, and I'm certainly happy to... Uh, to walk through that, I believe there's a copy of the decision in the Lambert condensed book. And the passage at issue begins at uh, page 41 of that condensed book. So the first thing we see when we look at the trial judge's reasonings is, is a discussion of Machlenko and Pino. And, and these are, are framed when we read carefully as as two options, as this dichotomy. So you can either have something be part of the same transaction, Pino, or you can have something that's a fresh start, as uh, the trial judge indicates occurred in, in Matchlenko. And I would just pause to note that, of course, in Matchlenko, the court still went on to consider temporal and contextual, and, and, and so that analysis still happened. And then if we move to paragraph 206, we see that there's this indication that the statements may be part of the same transaction, or whether the arrests following Detective Vermette's direction resulted in a fresh start such that charter breaches are cured. So I, I appreciate the respondent points to this paragraph to indicate the analysis happened. The appellants would point to this paragraph to say this is, is a clear indication of this false dichotomy that's created. Well, even if we take it in more generously and saying, well, it's, it's, it's kind of his encapsulation of the test, which he just cited in Mac. I guess the question is, does he really apply it in paragraphs 207, 208? Because those are, the, those are the two paragraphs of analysis. Those seem to me to be the key paragraphs that precede his conclusion of paragraph 209, uh, that, that we do have a fresh start. Correct. And, and we see uh, sort of in 207, essentially, that there was the words of arrest said and, and some words said by... Um, each of the involved officers. And so that sort of checks the box. He's already found, as he notes, I believe at, uh, at 2011, um, I believe, he's already found that the arrest uh, directed by Detective Vermette was lawful. So that's a finding that's already been made. And then ultimately, that arrest is a, a cure. It cures the breaches. Um, and, and in this sense, Throughout 208, 209, the trial judge is treating cure as essentially summarily for a stoppage of the breach, a cessation of the breach. So there's now been uh, minimum charter compliance uh, in the trial judge's view. And that then means that it's no longer part of the same transaction. It can't be. And I think that's the analytical problem. Uh, so if I, if I can just understand you in terms of your position on fresh start, 
it's not that you're saying that it it never can can be relevant. I think what you're saying is that it's a, not a helpful way to look at what obtained in a manner actually means because it does focus on causal connections. So you're just asking us to look at obtained in a manner in the way it's always in the way we 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 did so in Mac and in our other jurisprudence and suggesting that the term false start can be very unhelpful because it can take a trial judge in a wrong direction. Have that, I got your position correct? That's that's precisely okay. it. Thank you, Justice Katsanis. Um, and essentially that, yes, that police may take steps in a particular investigation um, that may result in, in a breach no longer being temporally, causally, or connected are uh, contextually connected to evidence that they ultimately obtain, or, or perhaps those connections are too remote or too tenuous. Um, but, but the appellant's position is that a trial judge still needs to do that analysis. And that's where fresh start becomes difficult because there needs to be an analysis to find that none of those possible routes are available. And in a case like the case today, the appellants submit that the police just didn't dispel the implications of those earlier violations. That's the problem. And particularly for Mr. Beaver, that's the problem. And so, A, it didn't happen. But B, even if it did, it's all part of the same course of conduct. It's all a continuing series of events that have led to this individual being both available to be interviewed and, and being in a room being interviewed. And so in those circumstances, uh, that analysis needed to happen and it didn't happen. Uh, the Alberta Court of Appeal uh, does a little bit more consideration of this issue at paragraph 26 of its decision um, and, and does find that there was no causal connection and there was arguably no temporal connection, which... But, um, but Ms. Sitar, you, you, you really, just to go back to questions asked a moment ago by my colleagues Brown and Kara Katanis, you, you, you're not asking for the law to change here. You, you, you are acknowledging that charter compliant conduct could sever the temporal, contextual and causal link between the early breach and the subsequently obtained evidence, which is where our jurisprudence stands. You're waving a flag over fresh start as maybe a confounding turn, turn of phrase, but it's not, it's not legally wrong, right? It, because it doesn't necessarily import a causal analysis, which this court has said in Whitwer and other cases is that's cited by the judge, which, which are not. The, so, so you're really, this is, the law was misapplied here, right? Yeah. Uh, correct, Justice Kessler. That's the, that's the appellant's position and that um, this case provides an opportunity for this court both to provide some clarification, which is really just reemphasizing um, the obtained in a manner proper threshold. And, and the appellants would encourage this court to disavow uh, fresh start as terminology, not because it could never happen if it's legally and correctly understood, but that because it can promote confusion and it can, uh, it poses a trap for trial judges that's just not necessary. Because really, if, if a judge goes through the proper obtained in a manner analysis and finds that there are no causal, contextual or temporal links, then the evidence was not obtained in a manner. We already have a term for that, and introducing uh, fresh start is is just going to make it more um, potentially confusing for trial judges. And I submit that it also 
assist law enforcement if they know this is what a, a judge is going to look at if they believe or they suspect that there's been some concern. If they are looking at it in the proper way, Fresh Start can also be misleading for them and thinking, okay, well, if we do the things now that we should have done before, then we're, we're okay. And so I submit that it's, uh, it's more helpful to have it just a re-emphasis of what this court has has already said in, in many, many decisions. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, you can go ahead, Justice Muldaver. No, no, you go ahead. Okay. So I just have a question for you, Ms. Sitar. Let's about, it's more about the temporal uh, link. Let's say that in this case, uh, when Detective Vermeer realized that uh, something went wrong, instead of giving instructions to arrest the uh, suspects immediately, he would have given instructions, uh, release them from their detention and arrest them uh, in uh, five hours. Would, have, would this make a difference? I think that would be a fact that then goes into the overall analysis of what the circumstances are. And we certainly see Whitworth provides a, a good example where essentially, but for uh, a police officer eventually becoming perhaps a bit frustrated and referencing back to the earlier statement, we may have had uh, uh, no longer any connections between the earlier breaches and that statement. And so I think there certainly are circumstances where uh, you have a fresh investigator, you make it abundantly clear to this person. Um, and and this court has alluded in past decisions, including RD, that that may well include and probably likely will include some indication of that the things that you said before aren't aren't going to be usable or may not be usable. You shouldn't be making any decisions right now on the basis of what's happened. Well, that's, the old, that's the old secondary caution. I don't know where that's gone these days, but presumably it wasn't given here. But if I could just take one moment of your time to ask you what you think of your thoughts about the guidelines suggested by the uh, AG Ontario and whether you support, endorse those or not, or some of them or none of them. Um, it's it's the appellant's position that in order to keep the generous and broad approach we need for 24-2, it's best to keep these doors and and, and considerations broad. Um, the risk of en entering rubrics and hard and fast rules is something that this court's talked about before in terms of it, it may serve to, to restrict access that is not, uh, shouldn't otherwise be restricted. Uh, having said that, um, Certainly, there's some factors set out that that could potentially be of assistance uh, to law enforcement in, in considering uh, what steps they might take. And uh, interestingly, if they are applied on the facts of this case, as, as the appellants did in their reply factum, um, this is not a fresh start in this case on even those considerations. No, I'm, I'm, not, yeah. I'm not suggesting that. What I'm getting at is, would this be, in your view, helpful guidance? Those The lists that we get may not apply in all circumstances. Some of the things may not apply at all. The question is, do you believe this would provide the police with helpful guidance in situations like this? If it is provided as guidance and, and suggestions, I think it could be helpful. Um, the fear is creating a different version of a rule that, that can become challenging at the trial level if you don't check all the boxes. For yeah, example. But, but on the other hand, if you make Delphic pronouncements about uh, causation and temporal connections and contextuality, and you never, ever go beyond that, no one knows 
no one has a roadmap. And you only find out when you're in front of a judge what the answer is. And uh, I'm, I'm not sure that that's a service to anybody in the system. I, I have to say, I mean, the the suggestions in paragraph 22 of the AGO's factum, um, quite apart from whether the AGO is right to suggest that we throw temporality into contextual, because, of course, you know, contextual, I suppose, can absorb everything. It's context. But, but, but the bullet points, for example, whether new officers were assigned to the investigation, would that not be useful? Um, would that not be uh, a sort of a useful bit of guidance for this court to to pass along? I certainly think it can be useful. Yes, yeah. it, the the only not, risk... not determinative, but, but useful. Right, precisely, sir. Okay. That that that's uh, Justice Brown. Precisely, it. I think it's not determinative, but certainly it provides some useful guidance. Um, well, nor, would, nor, nor would it be determinative if they didn't change right. in some cases. Right. It just depends on what's going on and what's happened and what they're trying to cure, shall we say. Right? Correct, Justice Mulder. And, right. and that's really the, the crux of the appellant's position here is that analysis has to happen. There has to be that fulsome examination of, of everything that's gone on. And that's what's missing uh, in, in this case. I mean, much like your, your response to the question about temporality, too, is, is well, I guess you know, whether it's five hours or five minutes, what really matters is what went on in those five hours and five minutes. Correct, Justice Brown. And, it, and it's the right. appellant's position that for, for police, um, earning their way out of prior charter, charter infringing conduct should be a bit of a challenge. That should not be, uh, okay, we checked the box of the thing we did before, or we should have done and we're done. Um, the sufficiency of their efforts should be assessed against the full context of the breach, that including the purposes of the underlying right that was infringed. And looking for have all of the implications of those breaches been dispelled you, and you agree you agreed with the ag's uh, guidance but i mean is, is it not plausible to say that the focus on what is a distinct investigative process might be too narrow because investigations uh, and police interactions morph from one process and one investigation to another within seconds and is that then a se separate investigative process so I wonder whether it might be too narrow, apart from the issue of temporality, which Justice Brown raised. Uh, essentially, what we're trying to do is what, what's called guidance is trying to perhaps exhaustively enumerate what sort of contextual considerations can inform the 2014 analysis, which is which is inherently uh, indeterminate in terms of predicting all circumstances, which is why it's been stated in the broad terms, broad and generous and purposive terms that it has been. Yes, Justice Jamal, I would agree with all of that. Yes. So in this case, um, through the trial judge's erroneous a fresh start reasoning, the court insulated a significant pattern of breaches that began with Sergeant Lyons' direction to detain the appellants under non-existent legislation. Detective DiMarino testified he would never forget that information when it was later reported to him about the detention and the transport and the booking of the appellants. It was the most ridiculous thing he'd ever heard as a homicide detective. And Mr. Tan will uh, provide some submissions regarding the RPG issue. But on behalf of Mr. Beaver, I submit that even if we assume that the arrests directed by Mr. Doctor, or Detective Vermette were lawful and that in effecting it, Detective Hossack did everything right, that could not properly terminate the trial judge's inquiry in this case, given the factual matrix and, and the uh, series of events. 
But additionally problematic here is what Detective Hasek actually did. And, and the appellant submits that she did nothing to actually dispel the implications of those earlier breaches. Instead of correcting the unconstitutional unconstitutional conduct of others, she expressly linked her interaction back to what had occurred with Constable Husband on scene. Nothing had changed. She was just repeating it. Being arrested just meant he couldn't leave, didn't mean it was going to be charged. And she gave those assurances knowing the extent of the earlier breaches, including that that prior charter and caution had been unsatisfactory, and with full knowledge that she was tasked with trying to address those concerns. And rather than Dispelling the implications, Detective Hasek perpetuated the imbalance of power between Mr. Beaver and the state. And the appellant submission, that's the concern that a fresh start could be found in these circumstances, uh, demonstrates why the language is problematic, why uh, there needs to be a refocus on the proper considerations for obtained in a manner. At minimum, the facts of this case required consideration of 24-2. It's certainly a case that should have gotten through the gateway. And uh, in in the appellant's mission, it should have resulted in the exclusion of the statements. Thank you very much. Ms. Jennifer Rutten. Good morning. In listening to the submissions this morning, it's important to keep in context that individual rights and freedoms have constitutional protection by the Charter. Police powers investigatory tools do not. The issues at hand in these appeals must be approached by a rights-based focus. And that's why the jurisprudence to date has provided the generous and purposive approach to both interpretation of the scope of rights and freedoms guaranteed under the Charter and to the accessibility to remedy under Section 24.2. Rights and freedoms have to functionally exist and not merely be on paper. Rights must mean something. And rights must mean something in order to maintain the rule of law and the public confidence in the administration of justice. The errors in this, these cases arise from an exclusive focus on the police investigation and not on individual rights and freedoms. The reasonable probable grounds issue involves focusing on whether or not the urgency created by two hours of uh, breaches of the appellant's charter rights and nearly every charter right that can be engaged in an investigation, uh, ignoring that and focusing on needing to have a practical solution to the problem in order for them, the police, to continue on as they had set out to do from the moment of the initial arbitrary detention. The reasonable probable grounds assessment correctly done must assess and take into consideration the fact that the appellants were unlawfully and arbitrarily detained and must uh, be in circumstances where it's objectively reasonable for the officer to take the position of arrest at that time. Similarly, the errors in the courts below focus on a fresh start by simply engaging in lawful conduct. 
lawful conduct being found by the trial judge to be a lawful arrest and providing access to counsel. There is a lack of consideration of the prior charter infringing conduct that clearly established temporal, contextual, and causal connections to the subsequent evidence. Turning first to the issue of reasonable and probable grounds for arrest, it's important in this context to be reminded of the factual situation that Detective Vermette found himself in. These are individuals where the trial judge himself finds and a 17-year experienced sergeant at the scene, uh, Sergeant Lines, testified to not having subjective or objective grounds to believe that an offense had been committed or that the appellants were involved in the offense. Rather, to maintain control, uh, which is clearly contradictory to the uh, legal principles in Kokesh and the basic fundamental rights of every citizen in Canada to be free from unwarranted state intrusion, he ordered their detention. They were not merely detained at the scene. They were put in the back of police cruisers. They were transported from the scene to the interrogation centre. En route, Mr. Lambert was uh, asserting his right to counsel and Detective Taylor failed in his duty to hold off and elicited information from Mr. Lambert regarding what happened. When arriving at the station, Mr. Constable Taylor advised Detective DiMarino, who is the detective who interrogated throughout both before and after the arrest for murder. Uh, Constable Taylor tells Detective DiMarino what Mr. Lambert had told him, and then Mr. Lambert uh, continues his confinement and lack of access to the outside world. He is, uh, he is searched, he is put in cells, and then the interrogation starts. Uh, the interrogation is interrupted briefly for the purposes of then affecting arrest and having access to counsel, and then it continues on. That is the circumstances of this case, where Detective DiMarino says that it's the most ridiculous thing that he's ever heard of, a detention under the Medical Examiner's Act. The concept in this case that uh, the police officers, not only Sergeant Lines, but then Constable Taylor and Constable Husband, that none of them um, knew uh, or acted directly contrary to their knowledge that they had no basis to interfere with the appellant's liberties in this case. Justice Jamal, you go first this time. What about the actual arrest, though, um, and referred to in paragraph 151 of the trial decision and uh, at the direction of Detective, getting an echo, uh, at the direction of Detective Vermette and the uh, essentially the suspicious death, the motive and the opportunity uh, and the information that the officers had at that point? Yes, the officers... And quite frankly, the trial judge treat this as if 
this was uh, not in the context of the continued detention. And so you have a circumstance here where Detective Vermont testifies that he had thought that these people were uh, arrested. And then within two minutes, um, he says that he formulated reasonable probable grounds to arrest. Uh, noteworthy, he makes absolutely no notes of the uh, grounds for arrest, who he spoke to, what information he consulted. What is problematic with the trial judge's analysis at paragraph 151 is that there's a lack of consideration to the evidence that pointed away from the reasonable probable grounds. There's a failure to consider in the circumstances where whether it was reasonable for uh, Detective Vermette to not make inquiries with the sergeant as to why these people were not under arrest. Effectively, um, Detective Vermette is insulated um, and in deliberately insulating himself by not making those inquiries. Here is something that happened that is the most ridiculous thing on the face of the earth. Well, maybe we should find out why the police officers who were on scene and who had better access to information uh, thought that there wasn't grounds to arrest. And then when we look at the missing information, and that's one of the reasons why in the condensed book of Mr. Lambert is attached the records that um, Detective Vermette says that he relies upon is because when you look at those records, and then you look at his uh, conclusions, it's evident that he is uh, not giving any consideration to information that directly points away from uh, from the reasonable grounds. And in particular, I wish to direct this court's attention to tab seven. And tab seven is uh, Vordier exhibit number 12, and it's essentially a summary of the event chronology. Um, if we look at page 87 of the condensed book, uh, the information contained in there includes, um, and I'm skipping, I'm not reading everything, I'm highlighting the parts that the appellant suggests points away from reasonable probable grounds, that the complainant, who he will know to be uh, Mr. Lambert, just got home to discover this. Uh, no weapons seem to be found. Complainant does not know what happened to male with blood appears, fell and hit his head. Uh, and then um, there's a entry of August 2016, where Mr. the deceased was noted to uh, require EMS assistance because he drank uh, floor cleaner. Um, there's uh, male is stiff, which then also goes to the timing, which then links back to just got home. Um, and then uh, there is uh, a form 10, which uh, relates to mental health concerns relating to the deceased. And then at the more uh, lengthy paragraph, um, it says that it looks, uh, Jim said he, the victim, looked like he fell and hit his head. Uh, and that they both came home not even 10 minutes ago, five minutes ago, don't know what happened, pretty angry at us, so just left him, left him with the company. Ms. So Rutan, can, can, I, can I stop? Just because I'm not entirely sure. I guess this, this, 
it picks up on Justice Jamal's question. I'm not entirely sure what exactly you're asking us to do, because we have the the voir dire testimony of Detective Vermette. We have the judge's evaluation of the points that he made that the the police information management systems report established a connection between Mr. Bowers who assaulted Lambert. There was animosity perceived. There was they were roommates. There was uh, uh, there was uh, signs of trauma, motive, and opportunity. And are you now asking us? And this is my question: to review the finding of fact by the judge uh, here? Is that what you're asking us to do? You're saying that there's a because you're, you're not. I, I don't. I haven't heard you say that there's an error of law. It's it's you're asking us to find a, an error of fact. Is that right? No, the error of law that the appellant asserts with respect to this is the failure to consider relevant factors to the issue of reasonable probable grounds. The law on reasonable and probable grounds says that you can't, uh, as the police officer assessing the circumstances, only look at stuff that points towards in support of your, your reasonable probable grounds. The trial judge erred because he failed to assess the assertion and the evidence of Detective Vermette in connection with the law that requires the uh, arresting officer to look at all of the information. As well, the appellant is asserting that it is an error of law uh, in this circumstance not to consider the unreasonableness based on the failure to make reasonable inquiries. Part of the reasonable and probable grounds assessment does not put an onus on a police officer to go and conduct a full investigation clearly. However, under these circumstances where there becomes knowledge that the scene officers did not affect an arrest, that it is uh, necessary in those circumstances to evaluate whether or not uh, the there's a, a failure to make reasonable inquiries. And the failure to make reasonable inquiries, as well as the failure to look at the information known to Detective Vermette that points away um, in conjunction with the failure to take notes, which interferes with the ability of the court to properly review are the errors that the trial judge uh, engaged in in his review of the grounds asserted by Vermat. And but again, you're not, you're not saying, sorry to interrupt you there. No, you're not saying there's a legal obligation to take notes, though. You're not you're not going that far. Are you or perhaps you are? You're not saying that the standard that one's used to seeing and cited here that a common sense, practical decision by the arresting officer based on information that they had at the time is, is wrong. Are you saying that those two things were errors? The, the principles are not wrong in law, but what is required is an assessment of the objective reasonableness. And in a circumstance where the police are wanting to maintain control over somebody, that has been in their detention unlawfully for the past two hours, in order for that to be objectively reasonable, uh, the police officer needs to, to take notes in order to, the onus is on the officer or the state, um, the officer, if applying for a warrant, the state on a voir dire to demonstrate 
reasonable probable grounds. Seems and to me, though, that you're asking at that point to for us to reassess the trial judge's finding of credibility, because what you're really saying here, if I understand it, is, is that Officer Vermette, this was just a, a ruse. He, he realized they were in a big problem. So he kind of just looked at this and gave it, um, really didn't assess it properly and and came to the inevitable conclusion that he had grounds because he knew they were in trouble. The trial judge went nowhere near that. And, and so that's number one. And number two, I'll just put this to you. It seems to me you are suggesting that if there are potentially two plausible explanations as to and one being criminal and the other being an accident or two possible explanations, but the, the evidence in one set goes one way and it's plausible that motive opportunity and, and suspicious death can lead to reasonable grounds, whereas another way of looking at it might lead to a different conclusion that there's no basis to arrest. The officer has to make the call. If there are two possible ways that this could have happened or plausible ways, it will be an unlawful arrest if he goes, if he makes the arrest. That's what I'm hearing. I, I'm not being clear then, because with respect to your last question, it's not a matter of if there are two plausible options that then that doesn't equate to reasonable probable grounds what the if it is that a police officer needs to consider uh, the whole of the information before them and determine whether or not there's reasonable probable grounds then on the objective assessment and evaluation by the trial judge that has to also be a factor in the reasons for judgment that's not non-existent. And with respect to the uh, onus to keep notes, it's in this circumstance where you have an individual who is being um, actively detained and you're wanting to uh, execute a lawful arrest, uh, that should be uh, to the police officer themselves and to a reviewing court, not the same situation as evaluating uh, somebody on the street. And so when the trial judge evaluates this and says, oh, there's a sense of urgency and how on earth could Detective Vermette be held to such a high standard? Well, it's exactly in this circumstance that um, both the police and a reviewing court must uh, proceed in caution. It's not just to presume that I have the same flexibility as a street officer. The only urgency created in this circumstance is by the unlawful and charter infringing conduct by the Ms. police. Ms. Rattan, I wonder if I can pull you back to Justice Moldaver's first question, because I'm, I'm having a bit of difficulty understanding your position too. And I'm wondering if, 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 Maybe I'm missing something because uh, uh, the way I see this this point, right? Detective Vermette has no notes, right? There's nothing contemporaneous. For all we know, he could have been making this up uh, post facto. That goes not to what you're focusing on, which is is the objective reasonable grounds, but whether he subjectively believed that he had grounds for arrest. And and <clears throat> what we can do at this level. I don't know, maybe there is something we can do, but what I'm interested in kind of focusing on or hearing from you 
are the grounds that he did have. And, and, and I wonder if you could clarify something for me. Um, recognizing, as you say, there were things that he may not have accounted for, but what he did have in front of him that he says he accounted for. Um, he had, he had things that were already known to the prior officers and, and, and they did not see it as forming, um, the grounds necessary for arrest. He says that he thought that Beaver and Lambert were both under arrest, which was not true, but I'm not sure how that's a ground for arrest. It's, but the one piece of information, as I understand it, the additional piece of information he has is the information from PIMS that shows a prior altercation between uh, Lambert and, and the deceased. Am I right about that? Is that the sole piece of additional information that he has? Yes, you are correct on that. And I would say that that's even qualified because the scene investigators, as demonstrated by the 911 call summary, uh, knew that there was prior uh, animosity. And so the, this wasn't even a situation where the scene investigators didn't weren't alive to the fact that they were roommates and that there was some troubles earlier on in the week. Sorry, so Ms. Rattan, the, I th- no. just, just to, before you go on on that, I think Officer Vermette had something else. He had information from the medical officer saying that this was a suspicious death. There was nothing, the, the constables on the scene didn't have that. So I don't know how important it is, but I think an answer to Justice Brown, in fairness, you had to add that in. The reason that I don't uh, consider that to be a new factor is if you look at the exhibits in the condensed book of Mr. Lambert. Second, I'm sorry. It's not whether you consider it to be, is it? It's whether it was another factor that Vermette could look at. You may say it's not enough. You may say it really doesn't add much, but there was another factor. Was there not that the police on scene did not have? That, that this was a suspicious death. And, and I'd like to ask you that question, too, in another way. I mean, I think uh, what uh, Detective Vermette says, it was his impression it was a suspicious death. And I, I would like your help with some of the, uh, the evidence there, because it seems to me that uh, Detective Vermette says that at 11.39, he has no grounds to arrest. That's what he says in cross-examination from Miss Sitar. Um, and he never gets precise about when he uh, has information from the medical examiner. Um, he, all I can read from the evidence is that at 1240, which is subsequent to the arrest, that they have a discussion with the medical person and that all that he has is a sudden death from the um, uh, medical services, but that he formed the impression because he was being called out as a homicide unit and that there was a looks like a homicide. It was his impression that it was a suspicious death, but that that is not directly traceable to anybody telling him that, i.e. the medical examiner, other than saying there's there's a man in a pool of blood, and we would like the homicide unit to attend. Uh, do I read the record correctly on the suspicion point? 
That's correct. And when you go back to paragraph 151 of the trial judgment, uh, it's expressed that in the first bullet point that he had an impression that Mr. Bauer's death was suspicious. And that impression was based on the same information that the police officers at scene had. And this is a circumstance where um, the grounds that are listed uh, at 151 um, are insufficient on its face. And when you're applying the analysis and the legal question being whether or not the evidence meets the reasonable probable grounds threshold, then that becomes the error of law with respect to so that assessment. Just on that point, coming back to an earlier question, you are focusing on whether it was there were objectively reasonable grounds for arrest as opposed to what subjective um, grounds the officer had. Yes. And if I could go back to Justice Moldaver's uh, question, which addressed, is the complaint really about uh, Detective Vermette's credibility? The complaint isn't about Detective Vermette's credibility. It's about the objective assessment of the reasonableness of what he considered, what he did in the circumstances, and whether or not the factors that he say uh, formed his grounds were sufficient in law to establish reasonable probable grounds. This is not a circumstance where um, we're saying that Detective Vermette uh, did not in his own mind believe this, but when you put it into the context, one of the important things for him is that he's a homicide investigator that was called out here and that he was running along presuming that these people were already under arrest for murder. So it's not uh, hard to understand why uh, the subjective analysis, he was already there because uh, he was already there based um, on simply being called out in his role. But when you assess the actual factors and you look at the factors at paragraph 151, um, that they are insufficient and that they're particularly insufficient when then you look to the uh, other evidence that um, or information that the detective had or uh, ought to have had by making the inquiries that were reasonably necessary at the time. Uh, this is a circumstance where um, the so I was just getting an instruction from the registrar just a moment please um, This is a situation where the notes are relevant not to Detective Vermette's credibility, but to the ability for judicial oversight. And one of the uh, concepts in the Canadian jurisprudence that allows for intrusion on liberty um, by a warrantless arrest is that it's necessary to have an independent and rigorous judicial scrutiny. And in these circumstances, and it may not be required for uh, circumstances of different facts, but that in this situation, we need to have the benefit of the uh, the. Uh, notes in order to perform the independent, rigorous um, judicial scrutiny. And unless there are 
other questions with respect to the reasonable probable grounds um, issue, I wish to turn to the second ground of appeal, which is the uh, error in failing to find that the evidence was obtained in a manner that infringed the charter. This is a circumstance. Before, before you do that, um, uh, Mr. Ten, and I realize you're counsel for Mr. Lambert, not Mr. Bieber, but did the did the PIMS report in any way um, refer to Mr. Bieber or implicate Mr. Bieber? The only way in which it did so was in saying Jim said, um, and that there was then a search uh, to see if. Um, Mr. Beaver had any uh, record and or um, results from the police information system, which was negative. Okay. So there's nothing that would uh, positively um, bring any uh, weight to a factor for his arrest. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. The discussion earlier really narrowed the true focus of this appeal with respect to the obtained in a manner uh, analysis. The, uh, the appellant Lambert adopts the same position as the appellant Beaver in this circumstance. This is a uh, appeal that is arising because the trial judge failed to properly apply the law as it has existed and been supported by the Supreme Court of Canada repeatedly in its judgments. There is no effort by the appellants in this case to change the law. Rather, it is uh, an example of how the language of curing particularly can mislead a trial judge and distract a trial judge from what the true analysis that he or she must undertake is. And when we look at uh, what the trial judge did in this case is treated the concept of fresh start as being uh, equating to cure. And how do you cure? Simply by complying with uh, the requirements in the moment. So looking prospectively, not retrospectively. And by doing that analysis, he then fails to um, consider the uh, past charter infringing conduct. His analysis, that, his analysis then is exclusively on the conduct of the police officers. And if found to be lawful in that moment, then that cures, it's a fresh start, and there's no access to 24-2. It is that which the appellant is asking this court to reject. And in rejecting that, it should be uh, rejected this concept of curing, that really any language of curing is distracting and leading to only emphasizing a potential causal connection and failing to embark in an assessment of the temporal, contextual, and causal connections, which 
um, are the true analysis that must be engaged in. It may be that in any factual circumstance, the, those connections are effectively severed such that there is no obtained, that the evidence is not obtained in a manner. Uh, however, the trial judge in this case did not analyze those factors. There is nothing and no ability for uh, the Crown respondents to point to where he made an assessment of the temporal connection the contextual connection, and the causal connection. And that's emphasized by the fact that those connections are evident on the evidence in this record. You have a circumstance where... Yeah, I have to say that, uh, I mean, the law is what it is. But uh, I understand one can bring some clarity, specificity. You can ascertain time, therefore temporality. Logically one can uh, assess whether there is a causal connection. Did something give rise to something else? Context is so obscure and so utterly elastic that it can mean anything you want. And, and uh, to the extent that one says, ah, well, it, it wasn't fully contextualized, can't you always say that? Because, because unless you recount each and every event and and somehow parse it out how it fits together it's always possible to say well he's failed to take into account elements of the context the contextual analysis and just like the temporal and causal relate to the connections so any assessment of obtained in a manner has to be focused on the connections and when we look at uh, contextual in a definition that is beyond what the common law has then created boundaries and guidance for, then yes, contextual can seem overwhelming. However, when you look at the guidance from uh, the common law and you look at uh, that context is a factor establishing a link, then that concern is actually uh, not there. What the contextual uh, component allows is for this analysis of uh, that it was part of the same investigation process. And that when we're looking at context in this case, it actually becomes quite important because the individual officers um, are the same. So you have the officers that are unseen passing along office information to the interrogating officer, the interrogating officer being the same as the one who uh, continues on with the interrogation afterwards. There is that continuity of approach with uh, minimizing the jeopardy in the questioning that exists both in the police approach before as well as after the arrest. And that's the, the contextual uh, environment where um, context can't be disregarded as being an important aspect of the obtained in a manner analysis. You have the chain of events um, and the course of conduct that can link the uh, charter infringing conduct with the subsequently obtained information. But um, uh, Ms. Ms. Rutten, just to Justice Rowe's point, you, you wouldn't disagree that the judge stated the law correctly in the, in, in other words that he didn't 
um, fall into a trap of saying this is a matter of causation, pure causation. He, he cites paragraph 201, uh, Manchulenko. He cites Plaha at 202, where contextual considerations are, are to the fore. He cites Justice Fish in the, uh, the uh, Whitwork case, at paragraph 21, where Justice Fish says it's not all about causation. He goes on at 205 to say that one must be purposive and contextual. So he, he didn't get the raw, law wrong. You're saying he applied it wrong. Yes. And he, he got the, he cited the right cases and he cited what those cases stand for. It's that then he concludes, and this is perhaps most evident at paragraph sorry, 203, or sorry, 204, where he's dealing with uh, Mangelenko and Pino. And he says, arguably, they're not in conflict. Well, when properly assessing the law, they are not in conflict, because uh, Mangelenko is not suggesting that you get rid of the uh, obtained in a manner assessment of contextual, temporal, and causal. Um, so absolutely, they are not in conflict. But then he says uh, that they are dealing with different issues. And that's where he's in error. Uh, fresh start is not a standalone proposition that takes the place of a temporal, contextual, and causal analysis. And that's where the trial judge went wrong. And then when you look at what his analysis is, and particularly at paragraphs 206 to 209, um, it becomes even more evident that he's treating this as two different analyses. And that is uh, abundantly clear when you have a circumstance like this, where uh, the connections are uh, evident and obvious. And so the only way that that then does not become uh, evidence that's obtained in a manner is if you find and apply the law incorrectly, that uh, having uh, a lawful arrest and providing access to counsel then uh, means that you're, you have a fresh start and you can go forward. And that's where analytically the trial judge went awry. When uh, this court was asking questions with respect to the Attorney uh, General of Ontario's position, and I wish to address that on behalf of Mr. Lambert. The Attorney General of Ontario's position, as I understand it, is suggesting a change in the law. To that extent, the appellants uh, object to that submission and encourage this court not to engage. Uh, they propose to get rid of a temporal connection. Uh, again, the appellant uh, asserts that the temporal connection is one of 
the most important connections, and that's demonstrated when you review the considerations of this court and many other trial and appellate courts throughout Canada, that when we're looking at the broad and purposive approach that must be uh, provided in the access, because again, reminding ourselves, this is merely a gateway. This is merely opening the door into a fulsome grant analysis. That when we look at that, having a temporal connection ought to be uh, enough where that's a true connection. And in the circumstances of the submissions of the Attorney General of Ontario, there's this suggestion that um, their proposition of getting rid of that and focusing on a specific investigative focus would assist in the trial courts. The position of the appellant is that it would make things more complicated. One of the things that makes uh, obtained in a manner not a live issue in most cases is precisely the temporal connection. Uh, having this concept of specific investigative focus is a nebulous concept, and it's difficult to define. Uh, it also is quite contrary to uh, focusing on the state infringing conduct, and it again tends to focus a judge on state compliance conduct, which is not the purpose of the gateway analysis. Um, the, uh, so this, the position to change the test is objected to. However, when you look at the, um, the list of considerations, um, and there's um, a list at paragraph uh, nine, and then there's a list at paragraph 22. The appellant suggests that those are helpful lists, and not helpful lists to engage in some different obtained in a manner analysis, but these are factors evidence to look for in considering whether or not those connections exist in the factual circumstances of the given case before them. So when we look at those factors, whether new officers were assigned to the investigation, that was not the case here. Uh, Detective DiMarino continued and continued in the same format that he did prior to. He minimized the change in jeopardy and um, they were at the same location, guided by the same uh, in supervising officer, and he was still armed with the information that he was provided by the officers who effected uh, the unlawful detention. Um, so when the second aspect of that first point at paragraph 22 is whether they were firewalled from the previous investigators, well, clearly that was not the case here. Whether the police informed the accused of the charter breach and explained the consequences. This is a concept that's advanced in the factum of the appellants, uh, that in order to be able to meaningfully exercise uh, the right to counsel, that the appellants in this case needed to be informed of their situation and that they needed to be informed that they were under unlawful detention and that they needed to be informed of that in order before obtaining legal advice. That 
in this case where the trial judge treats the uh, providing access to counsel as being charter compliant, the appellant's, uh, the appellant Lambert asserts that even though he accessed counsel, that there was a missing informational component that was necessary in the circumstances, and so that that even is not charter compliant conduct. The third point, whether the police provided the opportunity to speak with counsel about the breach and fresh start. Uh, the fourth, if improperly detained, whether the accused was released. And this can become a hot topic in unlawful detentions. What is the only option of the police to uh, just let somebody go if at the time they, they know that they have grounds to arrest? No, that's not the only option. Um, it is a option, but the other option is to affect the arrest and discontinue the course of the investigation that you started um, and that was undergone in contravention of charter infringing conduct. And so when we look at cases like Whitwer, it informs this list and why um, it's not simply just doing what you could have done at first instance, if there wasn't charter breaches, there has to be uh, additional uh, requirements in order for the police to be able to then uh, have the evidence that's obtained after not even subject to uh, charter scrutiny. And so again, it's important in this analysis, not to unduly constrain the gateway because of a fear that that will then necessarily lead uh, equate to exclusion, we still have the fulsome grant analysis that must be engaged. And by by bringing in factors from the grant analysis to exclude the possibility of judicial consideration of whether or not the evidence would bring the administration of justice into disrepute um, is contrary to the fundamental uh, purpose of the charter itself, which is to ensure that the public maintains confidence that the courts will uphold the rule of law. There, the evidence in this case absolutely erodes that public confidence and the harm that is incurred by having this evidence admitted communicates to the public that liberty interests are meaningless. Thank you Thank very you. much. Thank you, Ms. Rutten. Um, Ms. Sector, please. Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. The obtained in a manner analysis is intended to encourage a thorough and meaningful consideration of charter breaches. The CCLA intervenes to ask the court to keep the status quo. Do not adjust the broad and purposive approach in favor of a bright line a priori rule. The fresh start principle is a distraction. It's an unnecessary addition to a working analysis. If charter compliance is an important part of the analysis, we can count on trial judges to appropriately fold that into consideration in their 24-2 analysis. We don't need to handcuff trial judges with a bright line rule. And I identify three problems with the fresh start rule. The first is that it takes judicial attention away from the breaches during the interaction with the defendant and instead asks judges to look at compliance, to focus on compliance. 
So instead of looking for a common link, a fresh start analysis compels judges to focus on compliant conduct. The judge looks for curing instead of connection. And this turns judicial attention away from the chain of events and tells judges only to see if there is a break in the chain. And in doing so, this redirects attention to charter compliance as opposed to violations. And that's a backward way in my submission to look at 24-2. The purpose of 24-2 is not to reward charter compliance. It's to maintain the reputation of the administration of justice. And to maintain that reputation of the administration of justice, trial judges should be examining links, whether they are contextual, temporal, or causal, between the evidence and the breach, instead of focusing on breaks. And so those are broad and elastic terms, as Justice Rowe pointed out, but that is a feature of the obtained in a manner analysis. It's not a bug. Second, the bright line rule uh, prioritizes the question of whether the breach tainted the evidence. Uh, combined with a fresh start analysis, uh, the question of whether the ended breach tainted the subsequent evidence revives the causation inquiry rejected in Strawn. And Justice Doherty makes this point at the Court of Appeal in Plaha at paragraph 46. So by focusing on taint, uh, we're trying to show uh, that the breach did not influence the accused. Uh, but since Strawn, the court has not required that kind of causation, that causal connection or influence between the breach and the evidence. Uh, the court did away with that causal connection because it may be impossible for judges to rule out taint or causation. Uh, at paragraph 48 in Strawn, uh, Justice Dixon said that the causal requirements like taint create an artificial task because it will never be possible to say with certainty, what would have taken place had a charter violation not occurred. So the fresh start rule asks whether the police changed their behavior so that the court cannot say the breach influenced or caused the discovery of the evidence. But in doing so, it narrows the connections. It removes a tool from trial judges analysis to see if there is any common link between the breach and the discovery of the evidence. And third, the fresh start principle incentivizes unconstitutional conduct. If law enforcement know that their colleagues can launder their breaches, they may take a constitutional gamble. Police will be less vigilant about their early interactions with citizens if they know that their colleagues can later clean the slate with judicial approval. And I know there were some questions about the Attorney General of Ontario's list at paragraph 22. And I will say that the CCLA would take no issue with the, the first four considerations, but five and six, the nature of the evidence is number five sought, that is too case specific to provide further guidance to trial judges. But more importantly, number six, this concept of a separate investigative process uh, and the overarching framework of a fresh start remains in that sixth bullet point. And so the same problem persists with these kind, that bullet being guidance and uh, the fresh start principle writ large. And so instead of endorsing the bright line fresh start rule, the court should keep the flexible obtained in a manner approach from Mac. There should be a broad access to what this court called in Strawn the more important branch of section 24-2, whether admission would bring the administration of justice into disrepute. Thank you. Thank you very much.
The court will take its morning break, uh, 15 minutes. Thank you. The court, la cour. Thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Dillon. We can't hear you, Mr. Dillon, you're on mute. Chief Justice, members of the court, the respondent will first address section 24.2, both the obtained in a manner question and the grant analysis. My colleague, Mr. Barg, will then address voluntariness and the reasonable grounds for arrest. In dealing with the obtained in a manner question, on the threshold issue, you should dismiss this ground of appeal because the trial judge reasonably applied the correct test. He applied the overarching test from MAC. Can you, can you point me directly to where he applies it? Yes, I can. It is in his reasons. Beginning at paragraph 192, and he completes it in paragraph 209. His reasons have to be read in their entirety. Yeah, and I've read them in their entirety. I'm wondering if you can direct me to precisely where he applies the test. Paragraph 205 of the reasons. He says it's important for the court to examine the circumstances in which the evidence is collected, which of necessity deals with a purposive and contextual analysis, but there still must be a connection between the breach and the evidence. He then cites the test in MAC. He then makes a point of underlining the sentence in MAC that says that evidence will be tainted if the breach and the discovery of the impugned evidence are part of the same transaction or course of conduct. That phrase from Mac is the ultimate question in the obtained in a manner analysis. He then goes on after setting out uh, at paragraph 207, what he considers to be the important factors in his analysis, he then concludes Okay, well, 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 let's let, let's before I sorry to interrupt. I I wanted to know where he applied the test, and I I agree with you. He cites the test, cites it correctly, appears to understand the correct elements of it. Where does he actually apply it? Well, his application of it, uh, Justice Brown, as I said, comes in the the entirety of his analysis, and he sums it up in paragraph two hundred nine. Well, well, if it's the entirety of the analysis, can you point me to part of it, just a little part where he is applying the test that he has cited in 205. And yes, I can. In okay. paragraph 209, he says that the arrests constituted a fresh start. And thus the... Uh, but that's a conclusion. That, that's not an application of the test. Where does he... Right. I mean, the, 
where does he where does he explain why it is a fresh start? Trial judge goes through the entire analysis of what a fresh start means. I, I understand your question. Where? 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 When he goes through the Manchalenko test uh, case and uh, the uh, Pino case, um, and ultimately Mac, he then. When he's using the term fresh start, he's using it as a shorthand expression for saying, I have found that in the entire circumstances, there is no connection between the breach and the evidence. There's no temporal connection, contextual connection. Where does he say causal. that? Where does I he agree, say that? I agree he doesn't use that phrase. Where, okay, I, I, I'm, I don't know how to make this plainer. Where does he apply the test that he cites in 205 and 206? There is no one paragraph or sentence I can point you to to say that he, he did that. And I concede that. I'm not disagreeing with you on, on, that, on that point. So what, what we have is the test. We have its history. We have the test. And we have a conclusion. And we have nothing else to permit appellate review. No, what you have are his factual findings. He finds that when the appellants were arrested for murder, they knew exactly what they were being arrested for. He finds that they had the right to counsel provided to them after their arrest. He finds that they knew they had the right to silence after the arrest, that Mr. Lambert was explicitly told that. Mr. Beaver knew that he had the right to silence. And we have him saying that for many hours after the arrest, the appellants continued to provide the same information they provided before the breach. That's where, do, all where does he examine the prior breaches to see if there was the required connection between the breach and the subsequent statement? That's the language that is used in Mac, the connection between the breach and the subsequent statement where is there any consideration of that you're right he, he goes on to what happened prospectively he doesn't except for one point he doesn't look retrospectively and that one point is about the one point that they did right which is they cautioned um mr beaver and which in fact would tend to suggest a connection rather than to 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 undermine it but but where does he look at the breaches which is precisely how you apply or a significant part of the application of the MAC test. Well, as, as I said, Justice Brown, I can't point you to one specific thing, but what, what I'm saying is that it's implicit when he's saying that there's a fresh start and that the, the evidence wasn't obtained in a manner, he's saying, I find there is no temporal causal or contextual uh, connection between the breach and the evidence. I think it's more, I think to the extent he engages in any analysis, it suggests that he assumes, notwithstanding having cited the test, he assumed that the state, the slate was wiped clean, but he doesn't even consider what was on the slate. Well, I understand your your uh, your point, Justice Brown, but it in the entirety of the judge's uh, recitation of the law, he's constantly reminding himself that he needs to look at 
the entire circumstances. He three times in his analysis, he sets out that the connection can be contextual, causal, or temporal, or a combination of the three. He makes a point when he's discussing the Manchelenko test to actually underline uh, that passage in Manchelenko. Then when he's referring to Mac, he makes a point of underlining the fact that really what this all resolves to is whether or not the, the breach and the evidence are part of the same transaction. He then talks about the intervening acts of the police and what follows from them. And then he says, I find there was a fresh start such that the evidence wasn't, <clears throat> excuse me, wasn't tainted by what happened earlier. And implicit in that is his finding that it's not one transaction. Well, he makes that finding explicit at paragraph 209. My objection is that he goes from the test to the conclusion um, without really what what he had to do was was analysis. I'm sorry, underlining the right part of a passage or the critical part of a passage is not a substitute for an analysis. Uh, and I, I take your point, Justice Brown. I don't think I can say. Yeah, no, I think I think more. I think we've I think we've beat the beat the horse dead. Um, yeah. So I'll let I'll let you go on. Right. So there's no disagreement between the parties about whether or not uh, fresh start is a standalone principle of law. Both parties say that it's not. And just to make our position entirely clear, we say it simply folds in with the obtain in a manner analysis. By necessity, a judge has to look at the whole relationship uh, between uh, the whole contact between the police and the appellants in deciding whether or not the evidence was obtained in a manner. And that's going to, by necessity, consider what the police did wrong, but also what, if anything, the police did right. Now, in some cases, a judge will find, you know, I appreciate the fact that the police, you know, had this intervening act and they tried to correct their errors, but it just didn't uh, amount to enough of a correction to say that there is an uh, insufficient connection between the breach and the evidence. And if a judge says that, fair enough, that's, that's, a, that's a finding of fact. So, but, well, can I ask you then, because I just want to make sure I have your uh, position on the use of the fresh start clear. If I understand you, what you're saying is that a trial judge's use of fresh start or that kind of a principle doesn't necessarily mean that the analysis is wrong. But would you agree that it is not necessarily a helpful way of looking at the obtained in a manner and that it it can be uh, it can import considerations that actually do not line up with the test so putting aside the fact that the use of those words doesn't necessarily mean an error would you agree that it's not a helpful addition to the test uh, i think that uh you're you're correct that the term itself may not be helpful i think the concept underlining it is helpful. And when judges or any human thinks about a concept, they have to give words to their thoughts. And, and the fresh start, that term is simply a shorthand for expressing the idea. Well, I, look, I need to look at the entire chain of events right. to see if there is an intervening act. But the idea is the already there. The idea is already there in our jurisprudence and looking at the entire connection. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
And if, and if the term fresh start does lead uh, the court or a reasonable observer to think uh, that there's only a causal connection required or that it's a, a, a whitewashing of the police's conduct, then clearly the term is not helpful. That being said, in this case, I don't think the judge should be criticized for using it because he's using it in the same way that Justice Fish used it in Whitwer and the way that Justice Watt used it in the Manchelenko case to say that fresh start is just a shorthand for looking at the entire chain of events. But if there's a worry that in future cases, a judge may not realize that the fresh start term is just a shorthand for reminding yourself to look at the entire chain, then I agree. Uh, it's not a helpful term and perhaps a dangerous one. And can we go even a little bit further, which is to say that the cases uh, like Whitware or RD that are that talk about fresh start, they talk about it in a way, but they don't say that there was a fresh start on the facts that allowed a particular legal conclusion to be reached. It was used as that kind of expression to say, uh, well, but it wasn't actually part of the ratio or the decision in the case. I, I agree with that. 100%. The issue of the fresh start has never been before this court uh, as clearly as this case. Mr. Dillon, perhaps another way of and building on what uh, Justice Martin just said, uh, fresh start's really a conclusion rather than a reason. And it, as you put it, it's a, a cluster, it's just shorthand as a cluster of factors that may indicate uh, a tenuousness uh, or a remoteness. Uh, of the connection or an indication where there is no, uh, it's not part of the same transaction or it's not causally related uh, or, or a combination of all those things. So it's really, a, as you said, a shorthand for a cluster of ideas that don't provide reasons, but they're a form of conclusion at the end of the day. Um, but we're still back at the end of the day. And it's something that's done in the analysis of obtained in a manner rather than as a threshold consideration for the threshold condition. Right. I mean, it's done as part of the analysis, not in advance of the analysis. Absolutely. It's not a substitute for the analysis in, in, in any way. Now. So the analysis, the analysis is quite important that. Can't just write it, you know, consign it all to fresh start. A judge's analysis is important. It's critical. And a judge's reason should be read in their entirety when deciding what the judge's analysis is. Now, just on, let's put aside the issue of a fresh start and, and the use of that term and just deal with the phrase obtain in a manner and ask whether or not um, the evidence, which are the confessions and the, and the breach are part of the same transaction. Now, the appellants are arrested for murder at about 1230 in the afternoon, given their rights to counsel. They're both interviewed for about 12 hours. Uh, Mr. Beaver's interviewed for about 13 hours, Mr. Lambert for about 12 or over that period of time. Towards the end of Mr. Lambert's interview, he begins to make inculpatory statements. The police then take that to Mr. Beaver, and in the, between the 12th and 13th hour, 
after his arrest for murder, he begins to adopt inculpatory statements. So by the time they make their confessions, 12, about 12 hours have passed since they're arrested for murder and provided with their right to counsel. And during that time, for most of the time, the appellants are simply providing the same information to the police, to the interviewers that they polite, uh, provided in the 911 call, that they provided to the attending officers at the scene, and that they provided to the officers when they were uh, detained unlawfully. Um, so in asking whether there is a temporal uh, connection, there is a significant passage of time. And by the way, I should say that Mr. Lambert says that um, it was obvious in this case that there was a connection uh, between the breach and the confessions. Um, when we say that the trial judge was right in finding no connection, we're not saying this was an obvious case. And, and we disagree with the appellants that this is an obvious case. This was a difficult case to decide whether the evidence was obtained in a manner. And, and deciding whether the evidence was obtained in a manner is governed by uh, the facts. So there is that 12-hour gap. And we say, based on that, it was reasonable to find that there is no temporal connection. We also say that it's reasonable that there was no causal connection. Remember that there's no actual tainted evidence in this case. The investigation is tainted. There's no question about that. But when the police detain the appellants unlawfully, they don't gather any evidence from the appellants as a result of that. And when they're interviewing the appellants later on at the police station, they're not referring back to um, what happened earlier and throwing evidence in the uh, appellant's face. So we say it's reasonable to find that there's no causal connection. Then in terms of whether or not there was a contextual connection, again, there's no evidence collected at the time of the breach. There's no evidence collected from the appellants up to the point uh, that they're arrested. In fact, there's no real evidence collected from them that we're dealing with until many hours later. They're provided with their rights to counsel after they're told they're being arrested for murder. In that circumstance, we say that it's reasonable to find that there was no contextual connection. Now, had the facts been different, had the police obtained something at the scene and then confronted the appellants with it during the interview, that would have resulted in a different analysis and maybe a different conclusion on the threshold question. And even on these facts, maybe a different judge would have come to a different conclusion. But the only issue on appeal is whether the trial judge's finding was a reasonable one. And for the reasons that, that I've outlined, we say it, it was a reasonable conclusion for the judge to draw. When is it, is it fair, Mr. Dillon, that, to draw a distinction between Mr. Beaver and Mr. Lambert in respect to the obtained in a manner? Because in Mr. Beaver's case, um, the, the uh, Detective Hossack uh, said it's no different to what Constable Husband read to you. And of course, Cuspin, uh, Constable Husband said, I'm investigatively detaining you for whatever was going on in there. So at least in Mr. Beaver's case, 
it seems to me that there is a um, stronger argument that the obtained the evidence was obtained in a manner arguably not so much in Mr. Lambert's case. But is that fair to draw that distinction? Yeah, I I, uh, I, I take your point that there is that that subtle uh, distinction, and and my colleague Mr. Barg. Uh, we'll talk about this in more detail. But I, I would also say, Justice Jamal, that uh, the trial judge makes a finding of a fact that despite that language used by Detective Hosick, that uh, Mr. Beaver knew he had the right to silence and knew why the police were interviewing him. So ultimately, the, the question isn't um, whether there is a distinction between the two, but whether the judges uh, not finding a distinction between the two evinces some type of palpable and overriding error. And, and we submit that his factual conclusion um, was reasonable that Mr. Beaver knew he was arrested for murder and knew he had the right to silence and uh, knew he had the right to counsel. And those are the three chief factors which um, are of more importance than Detective Hossack saying, well, um, what I'm going to read to you is similar to what was read to you earlier. I mean, essentially, uh, the charter that she's reading to him is no different than the charter that was read to him earlier. Different context, but he had just been told now by Detective Hossack that he's being arrested for murder. Clearly, he knows that because he says, you know, I'm under arrest. And she clarifies with him that that's correct. He's under arrest for murder. Mr. <clears throat> Dillon, Mr. Dillon the, the Court of Appeal recognizes this distinction, in part anyway, at paragraph four of its reasons. Um, mentioning that uh, when Beaver was arrested, the police did not reread him the police caution. It goes on, though, to say that the officers who arrested both appellants arguably gave mixed signals about the seriousness of the jeopardy they faced. I'm wondering if, if there was a kind of a lingering taint from the investigation earlier that, that continued its its work and that it seems to be acknowledged here by the by the court of appeal what are your thoughts there um there their main fact have been a uh let me answer it this way it's possible to say there may have been a lingering take that's why we say this isn't an obvious case of there being no uh no connection but the court of appeal also recognized um in, in the decision that the trial judge found that despite that mixed signal, Mr. Beaver knew exactly why he was being interviewed. And so ultimately the, the Court of Appeal, although they acknowledge that difference, it's a factual difference, but they agreed with the, with the, with the trial judge and they agreed that overall it didn't make a difference because the trial judge's finding was reasonable that Mr. Beaver, despite that, knew why he was there but and was, what, was, what that, was happening. But was that the gravamen of the problem, that Mr. Beaver didn't know uh, what he was arrested for? 
you're right. He's, he's told what he's arrested for, but it's the downplaying of the peril in which that places him that I think was the gravamen of the problem being suggested by the court of appeal here. Um, that, that he really did not understand the seriousness of the situation, um, which can always, of course, be cured with, uh, well, I hesitate to use the word cured, but can be addressed with, with consulting counsel. But, but it's undermined here by the kind of the weird posture taken by the police to downplaying the seriousness of this. Well, I, I take your point, but I would point you to paragraph 24 of the Court of Appeals Reasons, where they, they give their summary of, of how this issue actually resolved. And they're finding that, you know, at the end of the day, um, the trial judge's conclusion, despite that mixed signal or weird tactic that Mr. Beaver knew exactly what was going on. And but can I ask you how we can come to that conclusion so firmly? Because Mr. Beaver in in the discussion with the detective says, I don't th- probably I, I should have a lawyer, but also goes on. I'm not understanding the severity of it. That to me, in combination with the downplaying of the purpose of the caution and the drawing a parallel between the detention and the arrest, it seems to me that Mr. Beaver is evincing exactly the confusion uh, that maybe maybe should have more of uh, more significance. I don't know. So how do you address his specific remarks? So I have uh, a two-part answer to that. Um, So the first is that I I understand your your concern, but again, I I go back to what um, has been said earlier, that maybe another trial judge would have found that that was a sufficient connection. But the the issue was just whether or not it was reasonable. And the trial judge, just on the plain language used towards um, Mr. Lambert, I mean, you tell someone that arrested for murder, it should bring it home to anyone that it's serious, you, 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 you tell someone um, that they have the right to counsel after they're being arrested for murder, you bring them into an interview room, you tell them that it's being videotaped and audio taped. As the interview progresses, the police officer um, begins to tell the appellant, look, I don't believe what you're saying. All of that brought home, it's reasonable to find that all of that brought home to uh, Mr. Beaver what was happening and that he didn't have any confusion. And, and the second part of, uh, of the answer is that, you know, the judge only has the evidence uh, that's called in the voir dire to go on. There's no evidence from Mr. Beaver that he, uh, he was confused by what happened. Can I ask you this? This is what I'm having trouble with. You're you're quite rightly saying we should be uh, an appellate court needs to be deferential to findings of fact of a trial judge. My difficulty here is we have a conclusion that's stated in this uh, decision. 
And we don't have an analysis that draws on the facts. And instead, what we have immediately before the conclusion is a statement that the real issue for the court is whether their arrests following um, uh, Detective Vermette's direction resulted in a fresh start such that the charter breaches were cured. Mm-hmm. Given, the, given the difficulties with that as the test he that the trial judge says is the issue before them, and then the conclusion. How, what kind of deference isn't there? Isn't the real issue that the without any kind of analysis, the, the the court can't have confidence that in fact he's applied the proper test and to findings of fact, which I mean, it's it's hard to think of deference when it's not clear what the analysis was and what the, the indication is that in fact the wrong legal test um, um, may well have been applied. And 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 I, I, I take your point uh, entirely, Justice Garrett-Sanis, but uh, I temper it with, with saying that, the, you know, the first quote that you read where the judge kind of sets out this dichotomy, was it a fresh start or, or was the evidence obtained in, in, in a manner? What follows after that is his entire um, setting out of the development of this idea that intervening acts of the police can result in the connection being broken. And then he concludes by finding that based on the arrest, the provision of counsel, they knew of the right to silence. They just continued in their denial for hours that it's not part of the same transaction. The, the only difficulty is when he comes back to his conclusion in 209, he still uses the words, this, you know, constituted a fresh start and the statements were not tainted. And I, I guess that's the difficulty that I'm having. And uh, I guess that's the issue between the parties here. Yeah. And so I'll, I'll give you my last ditch attempt to persuade you, Justice uh, Eric Katsanis. Um, if he hadn't gone through that full development of the law, and he had just um, said, well, I understand there are some cases that talk about there being a fresh start based upon an intervening act. If he hadn't actually explained that what that means is you have to look at whether that intervening act severs the connection. You have to look at how that remedial action affects the contextual, temporal, and causal analysis. And I would agree uh, with, what you're, with what you're saying. But it's because he sets out that entire development of the law that when he uses those terms in his conclusion, it's just a shorthand way of explaining that uh, he doesn't find that this is part of the same transaction. Can I? I guess, just sorry, just to wrap that up, I guess what you're saying would make sense if we also accept that 12 hours is not a, in, in continuous custody is not a temporal or contextual analysis. And that somehow, unless there was evidence discovered and put to them, there's no connection. So if we don't, ex- I think you have to accept both to get where you are. Yeah. And, and, and I'm, not, I'm not saying that there only would have been a connection if there had been evidence um, discovered at the scene. Um, I'm, I'm acknowledging that this is a, a, a difficult case. I'm just setting that out as possibly one thing that could have changed the analysis. I'm also acknowledging that a judge on these facts may have come to a different conclusion about the threshold and uh, question. 
I um, guess, can I ask, Mr., not to flog a dead horse, but just to, to ask it, a, a different point, because there is a, an, an oddity that, that you can perhaps explain to me, that how can one rely on the pre-arrest right to silence under the improper detention to satisfy the later charter obligation, on the one hand, and then argue that there's no contextual nexus between the two on the other. How does that work? Well, um, even in, in uh, and, and my colleague, Mr. Barg, will talk about this um, also in his voluntary analysis, but you know, even in Singh, the, this, this court didn't say that um, a caution is determinative um, of whether or not a statement is voluntarily given. So do the police have to provide the caution more than once? I mean, he's told at the scene, you don't have to speak to the police. It's not said to him again, but the judge finds that he knew he didn't have, um, he, he didn't have to speak to the police. No, I, I understand. I, I, I must express myself, perhaps. I, I realize that your colleague is going to speak to to, to the law on this uh, but my point is we're looking you're you're arguing about whether or not there's an, a contextual nexus and i understand your severance argument and i'm just noting that oddly the the, the judge actually does reach back to the improper detention to satisfy the later charter obligation on the right yeah. to silence that so in other words he does reach back across this now severed link he he does reach back um but it's he's not just relying on um on mr uh, beaver being told he didn't have to say anything before the arrest he's also find, finding based on on the entire circumstances that mr beaver wants to speak to the police he wants to give his exculpatory version and at every stage He's continuing to provide this exculpatory version. But but, and, but the question, why would he reach back to something between which the, the connection has been severed? If the connection is indeed severed, as he says, why is that relevant? I mean, does it not suggest that, in fact, there is a connection that he's not exploring as he should? Well, he's, he's reaching have a, a, a two-part answer to your, uh, to your question. So he's reaching back to something that the police got correct. They, they properly told Mr. Beaver um, that he didn't have uh, to speak to the police. But in terms of this concept of, of reaching back, remember that all the cases say that in deciding whether there is a connection, a sufficient connection between the breach and the evidence. The judge has to look at all of the evidence to determine. Indeed. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's permissible when he's making this overall conclusion about whether or not there is um, a connection that he takes the entire circumstances into account, what happened before and what happened after? And remember and, and, that. And he's, and he's only taking the good thing and saying that still has an enduring effect after this supposed severance. He doesn't even look 
at the breaches, but the implicit suggestion we're supposed to gather is that those that their impact, unlike unlike the caution, magically ceased at the point of the arrest and the caution. I I don't think he went so far as to say that something magically happened at the time of arrest. He's just looking at the entire circumstances and, and he has the the authority to decide how much weight he's going to place on certain pieces of evidence and, and certain factors in deciding. But do you see the point? But do, but, do, but do you see the point? He says there's no connection between what came before and what came after. However, I'm going to reach back and pick out the one thing that they did well and say that that has a, a, a subsisting effect. Nothing else does. I, I take your point, but he's not reaching back in, in the way that you put it. Remember, there's no evidence collected at the time of the breach. So it's not as if there's some tainted evidence. Now he's going to reach back to something that happened at the time the evidence was tainted. And he's going to use this, this fresh start or some other factor, and he's going to cleanse that evidence and just whitewash it. But isn't that where Ms. Rankin makes a, a, a compelling point, which says that normally, if you charge someone with murder, you could make all those reasonable assessments that you, you've put forward to us. But if you reach back in this case, based on um, the unlawful detentions and what we're told at the time, the context here is different. The informational context is very different. So it might not register in the same way because there's a consistency between the breach that happened before and what he says the fresh start is. So could you address that, please? Well, I, I don't disagree. What I'm just I'm suggesting is that the issue really is their palpable and overriding error in the judge finding that he, he knew he had the right to silence based on looking at the entire chain of events, which included the caution given when he's first detained. And then what took place in terms of him just even after getting that initial right, but is to silence, that only he, he a factual fact talk. finding? Is that only a factual finding? If the idea is that in law, I don't have to look backwards to understand what the connection was, the contextual connection and manner obtained, and I just look at what I say is a clear communication, you can find knowledge after the cl clear communication, but it's not a finding of fact, it's based on a mis. Uh, understanding perhaps or a misapplication of the legal principle about what is in the realm of consideration. Right. So my, my response to that is that um, a caution is not a determinative factor um, in determining whether or not uh, an accused person knows whether they have to speak to the police. So, you know, if it's not a determining factor on whether or not um, a statement is voluntary, it shouldn't be such a overriding or determinative factor in deciding whether there's a connection between the breach and, and the evidence obtained later. Isn't it, uh, but isn't that something that really goes to the impact uh, of on the accused charter protected interests and reflecting of the seriousness of the breach? I mean, what, what I'm getting at is it, it can't be relevant under otherwise under both stages of whether there's a connection or whether it's obtained into a manner and also at the 24-2 uh, grant analysis because otherwise we have duplication 
at the two stages of the test. So it seems to me it fits more con consistently as part of the impact of the breach under 24-2, whether you, you know why you've been uh, arrested and whether the peril was downplayed or not. That, that's where it normally fits. Yeah, I, 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 think, I think that's right. Um, but the fact that there is some duplication by itself isn't a problem. I mean, there is some duplication in the obtained in a manner analysis and, and the grant analysis, because um, when you're asking uh, what the impact of the breaches were on the accused as part of the grant analysis, conceptually, you're also going to be thinking about was the evidence, you know, how was the evidence obtained and what's the relationship between the uh, obtaining of the evidence and, and the breach. That's why um, in many cases, whether there is a, a causal connection is considered uh, by the judge on the obtained in the manner analysis. But then when he looks at the, he or she looks at the, the grant analysis, it's also a factor for them to consider whether or not there's a causal connection between the breach and the evidence when looking at the impact um, of the accused. Um, I've spoken for about uh, 40 minutes and I wanna make sure that I leave my colleague with sufficient time. So with your permission, uh, chief and members of the court, I'd like to speak briefly about Ontario's position and then talk about the grant uh, analysis and then leave my colleague with enough time to talk about the remaining issues. On the uh, position from Ontario, this is the one area where I think there's a lot of um, agreement between uh, the appellants and the respondents. Uh, the whole thrust of, of the Crown's argument here is that the obtain in a manner test should be broad and Ontario's uh, proposition narrows it. Uh, the argument that Ontario is putting forward about the temporal uh, connection, and that should be eliminated, this wasn't litigated in the courts below, and the Court of Appeal made no comment about it. And, and I appreciate that it's not a completely new issue because it, it, it's part and parcel of the uh, obtained in a manner question, but no, no parties were actually um, keyed in on the fact that this court might actually change the causal, uh, contextual, and temporal test. So as it is, because this wasn't litigated in the Court of Appeal, so now you only have one party, an intervener, asking you to change the test. Had it been litigated, when you granted leave, it would have tipped off a lot of other parties, be the other attorney generals or other um, defense lawyer associations that they should also um, make submissions on whether the temporal analysis should be removed. They don't have the opportunity to do that. Now with the factors um, that Ontario sets out specifically that a trial judge or that this court maybe should give instruction to a trial judge to consider, there's some merit to that argument, but uh, we don't wholeheartedly uh, agree with Ontario's position. As we've said, and as the appellant says, the fresh start uh, is not a standalone principle of law. So setting out a list of factors that a trial judge can consider in deciding whether or not there's a fresh start really takes the focus away from the overall obtained in a manner test and deciding whether or not 
the breach and the evidence are part of the same transaction. But the, the factors Ontario lays out are already things that a trial judge can consider. And there's no cry out uh, in the cases, be they trial decisions or appellate decisions, uh, that courts are looking for a list of factors that they need to take into account when in interpreting a section of, of the charter. This court has already provided a way to interpret that section of charter uh, with what was said in Goldheart and Mack. And it doesn't need to be, uh, that section of the charter doesn't need to be attenuated uh, further. Well, the one big, one big difference here is that in most cases, the police don't know that there's nothing to say that they know that they breached the charter. They find out when it comes to a courtroom, but here they do know. So I think that's why the use of the word fresh start, whether it's right or wrong or in between, sort of separates the normal course we see where there has been a breach, but no one picked up on it until it got to court and a case where the police know full well that there have been serious breaches and now they want to start again. I mean, it's, we shouldn't get too complex about this, but there may be different factors and probably will be if what you're doing is trying to correct something that you know was wrong, as opposed to finding out when you're in the courtroom that you did something wrong. Right. Yeah. And I, I don't, I don't uh, dis disagree with that. And all the things that Ontario lists are already factors that depending on the circumstances, a judge can consider. So I just want to just spend a minute talking about the actual factors and then I'll move to the grant uh, analysis. So, and, and to give you some, uh, some reasons why this list of factors may actually not be that helpful. So the first is whether new officers were assigned to the investigation, and if so, whether they were firewalled from the previous investigators. Well, the two problems with that. First of all, that's all well and good, maybe in big cities like Toronto and Calgary, but some detachments are really small and they're not gonna have the opportunity to assign new officers. And in any event, no matter how big the attachment is, why should the officers in this case, uh, Detectives Hossick and B. Marino who do the interviews, why should they be firewalled from the previous investigation? I mean, they, they should know what's happened beforehand so they can conduct an informed interview uh, with the suspects. Um, the second factor, whether the police informed the accused of the charter breach, well, yeah, I, I don't have any uh, criticism of that, but it's just, it's already an obvious factor uh, that a trial judge can consider. Um, Just going back to your first one, I mean, again, let's use a little common sense. If they have no knowledge of what has been said before, and they're coming in, or they have been given knowledge of something that is unlawfully obtained, that could taint their so-called fresh start. And we see it happen in other cases where after hours of questioning, they actually fall back and say, well, you said this back then. Like, can we just keep this at a common sense, good level? You know, the, nothing in the Ontario's position says this is absolute. These are just some suggestions to be taken into account, it seems to me. And if, in fact, the accused has 
said, I'm guilty as can be, you know, I did this and so on at the scene. And it turns out that they weren't given their rights properly at all. I would have thought it might be of some importance for a new team to come in, but maybe you disagree. No, I don't, I don't d- disagree with that at all. I'm just saying that it's, it's already a factor that, that can be taken into account depending on, 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 on the case. I, I mean, to pick, to pick up, pardon me, but to pick up on what Justice Moldaver said, um, I like to give people a bit of a roadmap because otherwise they just don't know what to do. And, and as he said, you only find out, you know, whether there was a breach or what the consequence is when you get before, before a judge and, and maybe at the appellate level even. And in the absence of some clarity as to what matters the the courts tend human nature being what it is people tend to fall into conclusionary reasoning and then they they justify it with with ad hocery and so um, good methodology practical guidance points away from conclusionary reasoning and uh, ad hocery. But some of the counsel who appear bef- who've appeared before us today seem to love the obscurity. It, 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 it attracts them. It doesn't attract me. And I, I understand what you're saying. I'm only trying to be helpful in, in suggesting that um, when we already have a test that tells a judge to look at the entire uh, chain of events and, and the causal contextual and, and temporal analysis that it may not be uh, necessary. But if, if that's not a helpful suggestion and you think that, uh, that a list of factors is helpful, I'm not going to, uh, this is not the hill that I want to, uh, to die on. So that being said, I think uh, I can use the rest of my time best by talking about the grant analysis and why at the end of the day, this evidence should be admitted um, in any event. Now on the first uh, grant factor, there's no um, dispute that the breaches were serious. And the trial judge found that this factor overall favored exclusion of the evidence. Now, I think there's a minor dispute on how serious the breach was in relation to uh, Constable Taylor asking um, Mr. Lambert what happened on the drive from the police station um, from the scene. The judge found that was a breach, um, but it was not a particularly serious breach. Um, I mean, overall, the, the, the amount of weight that the judge put uh, on that breach alone, I would say is not too significant given that overall he found uh, that this factor weighed in favor of exclusion. Now, the other two factors, the impact of the breach on the appellant's rights and uh, society's interest in the adjudication of the case on its merits, these factors we say um, favored admitting the evidence. So dealing with, usually the rubber hits the road uh, in this area on the second factor, the impact of the breach on the accused. So they give their confessions 12 hours after their arrest for murder. 
before their arrest for murder, it's deny, deny, deny. After the arrest for murder, it's deny, deny, deny for hours until we get to the end, approaching the 12th hour, where they finally make their confessions. They've been given a right to counsel by this time. Mr. Lambert uh, has twice called um, counsel. Mr. Beaver has chosen not to take advantage of that opportunity. And as we had the discussion uh, earlier, um, they both know, at least the trial judge finds that they both know that they had the right, the right to remain silent. Mr. Lambert is told that explicitly, and the trial judge finds in the total circumstances, Mr. Beaver knew um, of that right. So while the breaches were serious and the detention was reckless, at the end of the day, the impact of those breaches on the appellant's rights were minimal because they just kept denying the offense for hours until what led them to confess, which was the police providing them uh, with information from their investigation as it unfolded, and then confronting Mr. Beaver with Mr. Lambert's uh, confession. So their confession does not arise from the breaches, it just arises from good interviewing by the police. Now, dealing with the third factor, society's uh, interest in adjudicating the case on its merits, society has an interest in making sure police conduct conforms with the law. Society also has an interest in seeing that um, people are held accountable or that there be trial on its merits to see if people uh, are held accountable for their unlawful acts. In this case, the evidence that we're dealing with is reliable. There, if you agree with us that Mr. Beaver's sta uh, statement is voluntary, and there's no argument from Mr. Lambert that his statement is involuntary, on its face, that's reliable evidence um, from the accused. And in the overall big picture of whether or not the administration of justice would be brought into disrepute by this evidence, the, those latter two factors overwhelm the seriousness of the breach. A reasonable person would think, okay, the police made a bad mistake. We tried to remedy it. What they did actually did remedy it. The evidence that we're dealing with is reliable and, and it should not be excluded from the case. Um, subject to your questions on the grant analysis, that's my submission. Thank you very much. Mr. Barg. Uh, good morning, Chief Justice, Justices, or good afternoon, I understand, for where you're located. Um, I'll be addressing, first of all, the issue with the grounds to arrest. And secondly, I will uh, make some submissions about the voluntariness of Mr. Beaver's statement. Uh, so the first issue, whether uh, Detective Vermette had reasonable probable grounds to uh, arrest the two appellants at the police station, I submit is largely a factual question. And I'll begin my submissions by trying to emphasize a few facts. Um, the deceased. But the excuse me, Mr. Barge, doesn't Shepard say it's a question of law uh, reviewable on correctness? Uh, well, it's a very good question. And uh, so the, the way I would analyze this is um, 
Shepard says there are make, says there are basically two steps. The first step is to find the facts, and the second step is to apply the law to the facts. But in both of these steps, there's some weighing of the evidence that the evaluating judge has to do. So uh, in this case, there's a number of factors. There's, there's not really any disagreement about what facts were before the judge, but the judge had to assess how important these factors were uh, and the factors that arguably pointed away from meeting the test, the judge had to assess those and, and determine if they were important. And it's that weighing. Sometimes it does implicate a question of law, and, and, and which is, of course, reviewable for correctness. But, but often the weighing is really, I submit, part of deciding the facts. I must say, I, I, I'm with Justice Martin. I'm, I'm finding it very difficult to follow this distinction. The facts are what happened. So-and-so was told something on a, at a time. Then they were transported to the uh, um, uh, detachment, et cetera, et cetera. Those are factual findings. The significance, the weighing exercise of, 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 of and, and which, which leads to the conclusion is the application of the law to the facts as found, which in the criminal context is a question of law. I mean, you, you can have another go at it, but it seems to me what happened is facts the significance in having regard to the, the legal test is the application of the test. Well, uh, I, let me have another go at it. And, and Justice, I might be wrong about this, and I, and I apologize if I've misunderstood this, but let me, let me try to explain this with an example. If you, if you think of a drinking and driving case, which Shepard was, and if you imagine a situation where the um, police form the grounds to make a breath demand and arrest somebody for impaired driving. And one of the factors that's in dispute in, in this hypothetical is the person got out of the vehicle and as they were stepping out, they, they lost their balance a little bit and they had to steady themselves against the car. And then, uh, so the officer testifies to that. And then in cross-examination, it says, well, the ground was slippery, the ground was uneven, uh, there was gravel road, uh, whatever the case may be. And then at the end of the uh, trial or at the end of the voir dire, the trial judge says, well, I've considered this evidence about the stumbling, but I've decided that it's, it's not particularly important in all the circumstances. So I don't give it any weight. And the other factors aren't sufficient to meet the test. So... Uh, so there were not grounds to make the arrest. Imagine the trial judge does that. And then the Crown wants to appeal that finding because the Crown says, uh, no, no, that's stumbling. That was really important, Judge. You should have given a lot more weight to that. Is that a, is that a question of law that should be reviewed for correctness or is that part of the fact finding? And, and I submit that it's part of the fact finding. It's, it's not just about what happened, but it's about how important uh, the, these factors were, and that's it's it's hard to sever the, the legal findings from the factual findings in some ways, and this is why I included the passage from Howison and Nicolaisen in my condensed book. Anyway, so my submission is that the weighing that the judge had to do here uh, did involve a lot of uh, assessment of the facts and weighing the facts. But why don't I just um, tell you about the facts that I submit are important, because whatever 
form of review you do, whatever standard review apply, uh, I certainly do submit that the facts did support uh, reasonable probable grounds to arrest in this case. And in doing that, Mr. Borg, are you going to tell us um, how the, the facts available to Detective Vermet differed from the facts available to the police officers on the scene? Yes, absolutely. Um, because my submission is that Detective Vermette is, is the person who assembled all the evidence and put all the pieces together, as opposed to the other officers who had some pieces uh, but did not have uh, the full picture. Uh, so the evidence from the scene, the deceased is is 33-year-old male who appears to have died. He's deceased at the bottom of a flight of stairs. There's blood bubbling from his mouth when he's rolled over, according to the information uh, given to 911. And there's a medical investigator who attends the scene and uh, this is not a police officer, but a, sort of a parallel medical investigation at the same time as the police investigation is occurring. That person is examining the scene, uh, making a preliminary assessment of what the cause of death may be in this case. And uh, it's her decision, her assessment that the scene is, quote, suspicious, uh, which actually triggers the attendant, the homicide investigation. Okay, can you, uh, I, I need to, to come in here because I'm very interested in uh, when uh, Detective Vermette says, it was my impression that it was suspicious. And in your factum, you say it is suspicious. Um, and Detective Vermette speaks often of this being a suspicious death. But when I go through, and uh, maybe I don't have the full record and all of that, but in cross-examination, Detective Vermette says, I don't know if there's a medical examiner there at 1036. I don't know that. It's not in the documents, the information documents I have in front of me. Uh, he says that on uh, page 393 of his cross. Um, he says, unless there's a comment, maybe, no, I don't see a comment on the event chronology. And I guess at the end of the day, what I, I, I can piece together from what he's saying is that he spoke with Sergeant Chisholm and he thought that somebody had spoken uh, with Sergeant Chisholm and that it was his impression it was suspicious because they were being called out, uh, but that there was no as a objective uh, report pre-arrest from a medical examiner directly to him that this was suspicious. Uh, he said he put that together, that they were there. He had relied on their experience. They're being called out. But to me, it makes a difference when we're assessing the objective reasonableness of reasonable grounds, not a suspicion, as to whether or not you can show me exactly where uh, this uh, this uh, came from. Did it happen or was it his impression? Because if it's in his impression of a suspicion under a reasonable ground standard, uh, that's um, an opinion about a suspicion and that may not meet uh, the uh, reasonable probability standard on that particular uh, ground. So I, I would like to be directed to that evidence if, if, it's, if it's there. Now, I, as I said before, I, I know that they say it's a sudden death and whatever, but the actual um, 
the actual, uh, you know, if you go to 393, he says uh, it looks like a new homicide. Fair enough. That's fine. My impression that it was a suspicious death. Okay. And then when he gets cross-examined further, he can only say at 1240 when they're talking to uh, Marg Cohen uh, that there is uh, more information that's provided there. So um, if you could fill that gap to me or tell me what else you're thinking about, I'd really appreciate it. Well, okay. So uh, a few points in response. So first of all, I completely agree that the word impression isn't particularly compelling and it, it doesn't get you very far to say that you have an impression that something's suspicious. Uh, and I also acknowledge my understanding of the record is the same as yours, that there's no direct communication from the scene, the medical investigator to Detective Vermette directly. So I, I agree with those points, but the reason that I submit that this is still an important factor is that, um, so the medical investigator plays an important role, of course, in investigating the death. And, and not every death that occurs in the community calls for an investigation by the homicide unit. But this medical investigator, and Detective Vermette testifies, he, he knows her, he, she's very experienced and knowledgeable. He testifies that um, she, she made the decision to call the homicide unit indicating the death was suspicious, which she has to know is going to trigger this investigation. So this is not just her saying, this looks a little suspicious. This is her making a choice to uh, instigate a legal investigation into a uh, suspicious death. So Detective Vermette considers this uh, to be a significant factor. And this is the whole reason he's called in is because she has communicated with the staff sergeant in homicide do said, we, in fact, know she was on the scene? Because Detective Vermette says that he can't say that she was. Uh, uh, well, the email from the homicide staff sergeant, I believe that's in the materials. It's in um, my friend's condensed book at tab six, uh, among other places. The email says, uh, just called from M.I. Marg Guerin, male found face down in pool of blood at front door of his apartment, gives the address, apparently had altercation with roommates earlier, two on the way to West Winds, which is the name for the police which station. Which is exactly the information in the 911 call. Part, part of it is, yes. And he's... Well, don't we have to go on in, in that part where it says, so at line 33, so the reason I mentioned this is I received this email prior to arriving at West Winds. It's a summary of pretty much the phone call that I had received from him at 1036, basically calling me out. The reason he's calling me right away is I'm the primary investigator, and it's my turn to be the primary investigator for the next homicide. So basically calling me out on a suspicious death. Now, it seems to me that we're getting really picky here, but when you look at this officer's time on the force and his training and the number of homicides he has obviously investigated, I mean, I think we can take notice of that because he's a prime investigator for homicides. He sees this. He accepts that he's being called out and the medical officer has, has given this information because there is a suspicious death 
And that's why they're calling in the homicide unit. And that's been its experience. So, I mean, we can sort of, you know, play with all this as much as we want. But in his mind, which is what's important, he believed that there was evidence of a suspicious death. I don't see how we can look at it any other way, in part based on his training, because this is what happens when there is a suspicious death. The medical officers get the homicide team involved right away. And so I And is the fact of a suspicious death grounds to arrest the roommates? So the fact of a suspicious death is uh, is one piece of evidence. It's important. It's not grounds to arrest anybody in particular, but it does give Detective Vermette a reasonable basis to believe that a that a crime has been committed. But let me stop you there, because the trial judge finds in terms of Constable, uh, excuse me, Sergeant Lyons, that there, at that point at the scene, um, the trial judge finds there's no clear nexus and there's not even grounds to suspect that there is a a murder uh, or uh, an indictable offense, let alone that these two are involved with it. So uh, how do you how do you square that uh, finding of the trial judge in one context with the weight that is trying to be put on this now? Uh, well, because those officers, to to my knowledge, did not speak to the medical investigator at that point. So they didn't have her assessment that it was suspicious. That's that's important in this context. And if if you had the medical investigator on the stand saying, I didn't have any reason to think this was suspicious when she was at the scene, and then Detective Vermette still wanted to rely on that, then absolutely that would be impossible. But in this case, the medical investigator is not a witness at the trial, but she is at the scene and she communicates to the homicide unit that uh, her assessment is it's suspicious and it calls for, it's, it's not what it seems in other words. But I guess even assuming for a moment that we've got a suspicious death, I mean, he's there investigating a homicide. He's been called in to do that. What is it? What are the reasonable and probable grounds to arrest uh, for the arrest here uh, of the roommates? Is it the fact that they're roommates or the fact that there's been a problem in the past? Is that reasonable and probable grounds? Problem with one of them. Yeah. Which was initiated by the landlord. But let's forget that. I'm just trying to I'm trying to make the connection assuming that he i mean he's only there because he thinks somebody somebody's called him in because there's a suspicious death he's arresting two specific individuals on reasonable probable grounds they have to be objectively reasonable uh uh and so i guess what are the factors that make these the roommates um reasonable you know objectively uh um they should be arrested for murder uh, well, let me let me try to explain that. I've, and the points I've made so far, I've been trying to indicate that there's an offense has been committed. And so that doesn't, of course, justify arresting anybody unless you can specifically link them to the offense. So in this case, the first piece of information that Detective Vermette refers to is the uh, the summary of the 911 call that, that he was angry. We had an angry altercation last night. So we left. That's the first point. 
Um, and, you know, police don't have any direct evidence implicating any identifiable person here. So this is two hours into the investigation. They're asking questions like, who would have had a reason to do this? Who would have had an opportunity to be in the townhouse to do this? And how can we learn more information about those things? So uh, there's the altercation with the roommates, which Detective Vermette learns about from the 911 call and from the email as well. And then there's this, um, I would suggest extremely important document, which is the police report from three days earlier, where, which indicates a, a physical altercation or confrontation between the deceased and uh, one of the roommates. One of them, that's a good, that's an important point. The reason why I say that it implicates both considering the totality of the facts is that they're clear um, that they were together. So Mr. Lambert, even in the 911 call says, we went out together, we stayed at such and such a place. Uh, we came back together. We were together when we made the 911 call to say that we found this body. So if uh, one of them, there's, there's this, uh, they're the only people who live there. And if uh, one of them did something during this period where they're claiming they were out, they were together. They're, they're telling the same joint story. So I submit that the grounds that apply to one can properly be applied to both. Okay, so just, he said he was pretty angry, so we left. The fact that they were roommates, the fact that there'd been a problem earlier was the basis on which to charge them both with murder. It's, it's essentially the, the motive and the opportunity. It's not exclusive opportunity, obviously, because we don't know who else could have been in the townhouse, but we know the only people who lived there were these two, and we don't have any indication of anyone else being there except from these two. What's the evidence of Mr. Beaver's motive? Uh, the, the evidence, to talk about a motive, there's a, there's a history of violence. Uh, landlord and tenants is what the uh, the police documents said. They're the two tenants, and the deceased is the landlord. And uh, so, but how does that get us to reasonable grounds? I mean, even in Cahill, we've uh, or Chahill, we've said a generalized suspicion is not enough even to meet the reasonable suspicion standard, let alone the um, sort of the, the reasonable credibility based probability that is necessary under 495. H how does that all together come up to anything more than these? The, this may be suspicious. Uh, and uh, we need to look into that. And that is precisely what a good police force does. But whether it's reasonable and probable grounds for arrest has to meet an objective standard as well. So if you accept that there's a reasonable basis to believe that this was a, a, a traumatic death caused by something other than a fall down the stairs, and if you accept yeah, but if I, I I might not accept that because I, and, and I understand and, you mean. And, and 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 let's go. I've made my point about if something's objective, it has to be in the record. It just can't be his impression that she was there saying that. And 
we can only take it as high as the record shows. But something that's very important, if you look to what he says at 411, um, page 251 of the record, um, the cross-examination is that at 1139, when he was talking with Constable Taylor and Constable Husband, the question is put to him, you don't have grounds. You're assuming someone at the scene had grounds and these people were arrested for murder. And then he says the following. Yes, prior to reviewing all of this material in totality. Yeah. And I'm meeting them. I don't have grounds. I'm relying on, hey, they've gone to the office. I'm assuming it's a murder. I don't have that, those grounds. So <coughs> he's saying that at this particular point in time and in his information based even then on what he would have had, even had there been a medical examiner saying that. He's saying in this passage to me that he knows at 1139 he doesn't have grounds. And what does he do after that? Well, he looks at the information sheet and he looks at the PIMS report and you say that's important. But what do we do with that kind of admission? Well, uh this is one of those funny issues where it's it's really it's it's really hard I, I submit to apply a correctness standard because either you the test is met or it's not. There's these factors which point to the roommates as having the clearest opportunity, not an exclusive opportunity, but a better opportunity than any other known person. And there's uh, indication that they have a motive. There, there was two days before, or two to three days before the death, there was a physical altercation between one of them and the deceased. And so the court, uh, the officer concludes, not that there's a prima facie case, but concludes that there are reasonable basis, reasonable probable grounds to believe that these people uh, played a role in this traumatic death. But he makes and, that assessment in two minutes after being told that his assumption um, that they had been arrested for murder on the scene. I mean, this is one of the peculiarities in this case is that that even the detective has assumed as well that they've been arrested on reasonable, probable grounds on the scene. And then he he says, you know, and to his credit, he said, I didn't make the decision in two, I made the decision in two minutes. It was a curveball. I didn't want to slow the process down, but I had considered the things that I had was looking at beforehand. But um, surely it looks more, uh, it, it looks like it was a quick decision uh, that one would take a, an objective uh, approach to with a little bit more caution. Well, uh, it's true that he made a quick decision, but I would argue that it was appropriate because he's realized that these people are in police custody improperly. So it's not a situation where he should take time to reflect on what to do. He has to deal with this situation by either arresting them properly or letting them go um, immediately, I would suggest. And he does make a quick decision. Uh, I suggest it was a proper decision, but he shouldn't be criticized for deciding quickly because it was a situation that called for immediate action. I guess, Mr. Right. Barg, I guess, sorry. No, go Mrs. ahead. Martin. Well, I guess I was just going to say, um, I mean, we're sort of doing a bit of a forensic analysis of what happened in the scene, but it really comes down to me, I guess, uh, speaking for myself about whether this is a, 
in the, in the case law, a scientific or metaphysical exercise of whether we apply common sense, flexibility, and practical everyday, everyday experience. In the moment, that was what they was happened. Um, the question, I guess, if one accepts that there's grounds to arrest one of the roommates, and there is this, both had had disputes, and both were together, and both were referred to together, whether there's a ground to exclude one. And, um, you know, people, it, it may be that the arrest, the basis was wrong, maybe that the arrest was wrong at the end of the day, but there's a, certainly a nexus here in applying practical everyday experience, it seems to me, that uh, there is a, arguably some basis, um, a reasonable base, some reasonable basis here. That is my submission, is that uh, it was a practical consideration of all the circumstances which the officer was required to undertake in the concrete reality of the situation he was in, and he did so. And so I submit that there were reasonable probable grounds in this case. And an important factor is the officer's experience and knowledge in assessing um, uh, whether he had those grounds. Uh, given the time. Sorry, can I just ask you, I'm sorry. Of course. You've said that a couple of times now, given in the concrete reality of the situation he was in. Do we take into account at all that he knew that they'd been unlawfully detained? Is that part of the concrete reality of the situation he was in? Um, I would say, I mean, it's part of the reality, but it's not relevant to assessing whether there were grounds to arrest at that time. Uh, so so, uh, so no is, is my answer in short. I'm not sure if I've, if I've missed the importance of the question, but my submission is that it's not part of the test. Okay. Well, no, it's just that a couple of times you said he really didn't have much choice given the context, given the, the situation they were in. And I wondered to what extent well, that was part of it. No, I'm sorry. I, if I said that, I, I did not mean to say that he arrested them because he didn't have much choice. That's not my position uh, whatsoever, because he did have a choice, which was, which was to release them. And that was a choice that he, I, I understand he did consider, but in his assessment of all the circumstances, he believed that there were grounds to arrest them and keep them in custody and interview them. And I would simply submit, when you think about the, the balancing that Story talks about between individual rights to liberty and the need for society to be protected from crime, this is a case where a reasonable member of society would expect people who are in these circumstances would be arrested and would be interviewed. And it's possible, given we're dealing with probabilities, it's, it's a real possibility that they were not involved in the death. Uh, and that would be unfortunate if somebody was arrested on reasonable probable grounds that turned out to be mistaken. Uh, but the test was met under these circumstances. I just want to briefly comment on if I've been wrong so far in what I've submitted, and you do turn to a 24-2 analysis regarding this uh, arrest that occurred at the police station, um, I submit that uh, you should accept the judge's reasoning on this issue, which he found that all three branches. Are we, are we bound? Are we bound by an alternative 24-2 analysis? Um, you're certainly not bound. No, not at we, all. Are we obliged to defer to it at all? Um, I mean, if, we if, we if we disagree, for example, about a breach, I mean, we've been very clear in the, in the case law that, that, that no deference whatsoever is owed. 
to a 24-2 analysis done on the alternative in the alternative to an erroneous finding of no breach. So what about here? Uh, so if you find, the thing is, the judge, I, I think the answer I guess I would have to say is that there's no deference on this discrete issue about the uh, grounds to arrest at the scene. Because if the judge found that there was no breach that occurred, then whatever weighing he, he may have done of the factors is sort of artificial because given that he found there wasn't a breach in the first place, whatever he can't really weigh the seriousness of the breach. I, I would like to say that that doesn't necessarily apply to the fresh start analysis because the alternative 24-2 uh, analysis after the finding of a fresh start is not a situation where he, he didn't find a breach. He found breaches. He just found that they weren't sufficiently connected. So that alternative analysis, I submit there should be viewed deferentially because he was assessing. He, what if he actually doesn't look back to the previous breaches and making that determination? Well, of course. Just what, do we, because, what do we do then? Well, just because you show deference doesn't mean you, you can still find errors of law, obviously. And, and my colleague address these points. No, but my but my point is what if 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 let's say I I, I don't accept your colleague's submissions on that point, then how does that change things at 24 2? Right? If he's if he if he doesn't even consider the prior breaches beforehand, then 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 how does that not, I mean if we're talking about tainting, does not that not taint his 24 2 analysis? Uh, it it could. Especially under the second breath. The issue in the um, 24-2 analysis is whether there's a connection. So he, he didn't err in finding that there were breaches. He found the breaches and he recognized that they were serious. So his error wasn't about whether breaches occurred at all. His error was, if you find an error, it was in the strength of the connection between the breaches and the evidence that was obtained. Right. But that is distinct from the, the narrow issue I'm talking about at this moment, which is the 24-2 analysis, uh, if there was a breach in terms of the arrest at the police station. Because the judge found, if that was a breach in his alternative analysis, that it wasn't a particularly serious one. And just on that point, I suggest that his analysis was correct. Uh, and in addition, as if you can go even to the passages from the record that Justice Martin was referring to, by 1235 and 1240, Detective Vermette has learned significant additional information in an actual call with the medical investigator. She's learned at this point that there are these emails on the uh, computer screen belonging to the deceased, or sorry, they're not emails, I think they're Facebook messages, but some kind of communications on the screen. The judge describes this at paragraph 160. This came to Detective Vermette's attention about 15 to 20 minutes after he instructed these officers to carry out the arrest. He didn't know this information when he made that assessment. But if you do get to a 24-2 analysis on this point, then what I would say is if there were if he fell short of grounds at 1220 when he made the decision, this information by 1240 uh, was uh, indisputably did establish grounds at that point. So 20 minutes of the detention perhaps uh, shouldn't have occurred, but the subsequent 11 and a half hours uh, was with proper grounds. 
It would have been a short reprieve if they'd been let go. That's what you're saying. <laughs> they would have been picked up in a matter of minutes thereafter. Not that that justifies anything, but that's kind of the reality no, it's, of this. It's, it's absolutely, it doesn't justify anything, but it's an important fact in this case, because even before police knew anything about this case, the two appellants have made the decision to, they've, they've come up with a story that they're going to tell, and they've chosen to call police to tell that story. And then what happens, the breaches, of course, are not excusable, but what happens in effect is that they're at the police station telling that story that they always planned to tell. And that is, I, I submit, really the, the, the ultimate reason why the judge found that the breaches didn't have all that much impact on them. Uh, I have only a, a couple minutes left, literally, so I'll just briefly make submissions about voluntariness. Um, simply put, my submission is that the trial judge's findings of fact in this case are sufficient to resolve the question of voluntariness. He found that Mr. Beaver knew he didn't have to speak with police. That's a finding of fact. He found that Mr. Beaver knew that what he said could be used in evidence against him. He found that Mr. Beaver knew why he was being interviewed, and he found uh, that Mr. Beaver uh, confessed when he did, not because of anything the police did, but because of his uh, co-accused or co-suspect or co-detainee who uh, had already confessed, and he watched a video of that confession. So all those findings were reasonably available on the record. Uh, my friends do not even allege palpable and overriding error, as I understand it. So even if the judge did make some kind of legal error, which I suggest he didn't, but those findings of fact, uh, you can apply the correct test to those findings of fact, and the statement was voluntary. Justice Martin, um, you asked a question to uh, one of the other lawyers, suggesting that Mr. Beaver is, your words I think were evincing confusion in the interview and you suggest isn't he isn't he showing that he's confused he doesn't understand what's going on and the judge said no he's he's pretending that he doesn't understand what's going on but the judge drew this inference that mr beaver knew all along right from the very beginning exactly what was going on and that's why uh, perhaps that contributed to the uh, obtained in a matter analysis because the judge found that Mr. Beaver, right from the beginning, was intending to mislead police. That's what he was doing in the 911 call. That's what he was doing when he was transported. And he, so he, he never misunderstood his jeopardy because he knew right from the moment that he realized this person was deceased, what his jeopardy actually was. And the judge reasonably concluded on the evidence that his statement was voluntary. So I am out of time, but subject to any questions, uh, those are my submissions. Thank you very much, Mr. Barg. Um, Ms. Uh, Mabel-Lai? Thank you, Chief Justice. Justices. Uh, the Attorney General of Ontario makes two submissions about the nexus between the breach and the impugned evidence uh, required to meet the obtained in a manner threshold. Uh, first, what that nexus is, and then what's required uh, to sever it. In our submission, defining what the nexus is is a necessary predicate uh, to defining what can sever it. With respect to what the nexus is, we say it's fully captured 
uh, by causality and or context. Temporality is properly considered, assumed by the latter. And with what can sever it, uh, we say the causal and or contextual links uh, between the breach and the obtention of evidence uh, can uh, be severed. And with respect to a contextual link in particular, we submit what's required is an event uh, that takes the obtention of the evidence outside of the same specific investigative process as the breach. And under this rubric, I want to specifically address concerns that have been raised, uh, firstly, about whether that construction uh, of the contextual link is unduly narrow, and then uh, secondarily, whether labeling it uh, what we call the, the event necessary to sever uh, the link, whether labeling it as a fresh start uh, is a helpful way uh, of looking uh, at it. But I'll begin uh, by briefly addressing our position on temporality. Uh, our proposal is a refinement uh, of what this court currently uh, uh, sets forth in its framework. It's not any dramatic change, and it's an answer to a concern raised uh, particularly in the academic commentary we've set out at paragraphs five and six of our factum uh, about where temporality fits into the analysis, not whether it does, but where. Um, and, and the two uh, academic commentators in particular, uh, then Professor Pachaco and Professor Sankoff, we commend uh, that language uh, for your consideration. And we see two reasons primarily why temporality just does not belong at that top level of the analysis with causality and context. Uh, first, unlike causality and context, uh, it's neither sufficient nor necessary. Uh, causal connection is not necessary, but it's sufficient, so is context. Uh, and also, uh, more meaningfully, the content's already subsumed within context. Uh, in Manchelenko, for example, at paragraph 79, uh, Justice Watt takes care to point out that temporality has to uh, involve, in what he says, more than simply counting up the time that has elapsed between the two events. You know when ju when you know when just when uh, Lord Sumption left the bench, he gave us he gave a speech and he gave various examples of of judicial speak, and one of them was the analysis is contextual, and he translated that to mean we can do whatever we want. Um, the 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 point being that if and I think I'm with Justice Rowe on this. If you throw everything in the kitchen sink into contextual, um, it is amenable to unpredictable um, outcomes, unpredictable analysis for that matter. And maybe there is something to taking out a factor, even if a non-determinative factor such as temporality and giving it, um, giving it pride of place since it often will connote a connection just by a, the nature of temporality. On the other hand, you want to be careful not to um, give police an opportunity to attenuate temporality by simply just subjecting someone to a 12-hour interview, right? At some point, there's no right. more temporality. Right. And quite right. And I think the concern uh, from our perspective is that temporality without any of the cir surrounding circumstances just doesn't add anything meaningfully to whether there's a connection between the evidence and the breach, which ultimately has to be the focus uh, of the analysis. Yeah, but the and point what, is that the point is that contextual is even worse that way. And that's why we try to add some uh, proposed uh, potential guidance moving forward. Uh, and, and I'll move to that now. Our, our construction of the same 
same specific investigative process. The language uh, we've taken from uh, or tried to take from the law uh, as it currently is, we have we find in Plaha, same interrogation process. Uh, Botros from our Court of Appeal speaks of a connection to investigative steps. Strawn talks to the course of a single transaction. Uh, grant from 1993 from this court, an integral component in a series of investigative tactics, a total investigatory, uh, investigatory process, a tactical connection. And so we say that properly applied, and we take the examples, um, we've set out at paragraph 15 of our factum, properly applied, it is the broad and generous approach uh, that uh, we uh, do not seek to derogate from. Uh, we say that our approach uh, gives full effect to that concern. Thank you very However much. However you label it. Thank you very much, Chief Justice. Thank you. The reply, um, Ms. Sitar. Thank you, Chief Justice. In response to uh, some of my uh, Crown colleagues' submissions and, and the exchange, I just wanted to provide some references regarding uh, the information that was available to Detective Vermette regarding the medical investigator. At the time Detective Vermette claimed grounds 1220, uh, he did not have any discussions with the medical investigator. That discussion came at 12.40 after the grounds had been claimed. As of 12.20, what Detective Vermette had was the discussion with his staff sergeant, which resulted in an email with the ex rel relatively the same content. That's in uh, Mr. Lambert's condensed book at tab six. And within the appellant's joint record at page 207, this is where Detective Vermette indicates that it was his impression he was being called out as a primary on a suspicious death. In the Crown record at page 2, lines 16 to 22, is a testimony of Detective Vermette where he indicates he does not know when the medical investigator showed up at the scene. 24 to 27, his testimony was, all I can tell you is when I'm getting communicated by Staff Sergeant Chisholm, is that indication that he's already talked to her. They've already talked about this particular investigation. I don't know exactly where she's been, what she's been doing, who she's been talking to, and the sources of her information. So the limited information uh, available to Detective Vermette regarding the, the uh, investigator is in the email. With respect to voluntariness, The appellants would note that the law makes plain that voluntariness requires an individual to have information about their jeopardy and their right to remain silent in a way that they would understand. They need to understand the nature of the investigation, the risks of speaking, and the choices between those options. And fundamentally, that's what Mr. Beaver was lacking in this particular case. The appellants admit that just proving or the Crown disproving police misconduct cannot be enough. It's a rule that's aimed at, at freedom of will. If someone makes a statement the Crown wants to rely on, they need to be able to establish beyond a reasonable doubt that they made that knowing that they had the right not to do so. The other uh, reply submission I would make is with respect to the temporal um, connection it would be 
on behalf of Mr. Beaver the submission that the temporal time period that's to be considered there is between the breach and the next step, that 12 hours uh, continues throughout that period of time, particularly for Mr. Beaver, where there isn't a remedy uh, in our submission of the actual informational uh, concerns and there is a reference back, that 12 hours eventually passes uh, should not be sufficient to uh, to terminate a, what would otherwise be a temporal connection, that that temporal connection continues. Um, subject to any other questions, those would be my submissions and reply. Thank you very much. Mr. Bates. Yes, thank you. Um, with respect to the reasonable grounds discussion that's occurred to date, I just want to refer the court to the language that was used in story by this court because I think it's important to, to reference the importance of it. And the court there uh, referred to a quote from an English case, Dumbbell v. Roberts. I'll just read a portion of it, indicating uh, the police are not called on before acting to have anything like a prima facie case for conviction, but the duty of making such inquiry as the circumstances of the case ought to indicate to a sensible man is without difficulty presently practicable. It does... It, sorry, does rest on them, for to shut your eyes to the obvious is not to act reasonably. So that's what the appellant Lambert is saying in the circumstance here, where you actually have uh, the Crown's uh, description of the police officers arresting, uh, essentially a de facto arrest on the basis of imaginary legislation. And it goes from imaginary legislation to a, a, an act that does exist, but doesn't actually have any of the power to do what the police did. Which then leads me to then the other point is that the, the ongoing very detailed discussion that happened with respect to obtain in a manner, I'll suggest turned very strongly towards causal connection. And it missed the point, just like we're saying is the problem in the trial judge's analysis that's not there. It went back to uh, my friend, Mr. Dillon saying, well, there's not a statement that's tainted. The question is, whether or not any kind of fresh start or however you want to analyze it actually went to the connections that existed and then made them come to an end or separated them. Because this is the threshold test. This is only whether you're getting in the door to make the argument. So then when we get further on, we hear submissions from Mr. Barg that say, well, you can't fault this officer for acting very quickly. He had to act very quickly. He found himself in a situation that was untenable and un arbitrary and, and prolonged unlawful detentions not allowed. So he either has to move quickly to an arrest or release them immediately. But in those circumstances, we're, we're prepared to accept that temporality is, is not an important piece, that we should reformulate, use the facts of this case to reformulate how we look at a test that actually there's no reason to believe is causing any trouble up to this point. And the temporality is important precisely because as an applicant in the position of Mr. Lambert or Mr. Beaver, it's not easy to just point and say, this is exactly how there's a connection. And so in order to ensure that rights are not shut down for analysis prematurely, you include those pieces that's why we have them i'm just trying to understand something here what and it's hypothetical but you know we talk about temporality causality context if detective vermette had arrested these people 
and said to them, look, everything up till now has been, it's involved a number of uh, violations of your charter rights. And we um, want no part of those. We we seek to um, uh, separate ourselves from everything that's happened. So now let me tell you something. You're charged with murder. Okay? You have the right to retain and instruct counsel. You have the right to remain silent. Uh, and you are to ignore. Take, take it from us. There's no impact on anything you've done or said up till now. Like used to be in the secondary cautions, which, by the way, I don't know why they weren't. This wasn't a perfect case for a secondary caution. And for myself, I would add it to the Crown's list. But if, if, if Vermette had done all that and they contacted counsel, would you still be here? Because I'd not. like to know what the police, I think we'd all like to know what the police could have done here to break this. Um, they almost literally did nothing. And that's the point. No, no, I'm not so, asking you that. I gave you a hypothetical. They do yes. everything. They say, forget about everything that's happened. It's all charter non-compliant. We're starting again. You're charged with murder. Call a lawyer, whatever. Here's your rights. And just clean the whole mess up from that point of view, and the guy calls a lawyer, I mean, would, would any of this matter to you? Or are we just sort of talking in generalities here? Because the bottom line is you would always say, oh, well, you know, whatever they said really wouldn't have meant much. No, I think, Justice Moldaver, that is actually precisely the point. If, if they go through and they actually do all of those very specific things you've just been outlining, and, and in a way that allows the trial judge to say, here's what the connections were in terms of temporal, contextual, and causal. Here are the things that were then done in an attempt to make a fresh start. And here is why I say those things actually did sever the connection. And when you have that full analysis, you don't have to call it a fresh start. You've just used the test. You've applied it as opposed to just simply referencing what the test is. And you've actually made findings about it. That's very helpful. That's helpful. You've answered the question, Mr. Bates. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you very much. So the court will will take the case under advisement. I thank you. Thank all counsel for their submissions. And um, the court is adjourned until tomorrow morning, 9.30. Thank you. Bon après-midi à tous. Thanks for listening to Canada's Court. Presented by the Criminal Lawyers Association. A full webcast version of the oral argument featured in today's episode can be viewed from the Supreme Court of Canada website at scc-csc.ca or obtained from the court directly. Other episodes are available on all major podcast platforms or by visiting podcast.criminallawyers.ca. The Supreme Court of Canada is not affiliated with this podcast and did not produce or participate in its creation.